Hello and welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast. As you can hear, I'm not in my studio. Right now I am on the 48th floor of a hotel in San Francisco. And I am looking down at the city of San Francisco. I'm right in the middle of the fucking city centre with skyscrapers all around me. I'm up on the 48th floor. Very surreal for me that much concrete you know so here's the crack I'm in San Francisco now I was in Los Angeles last week um, as you know with me right I, I am obsessed with the film Blade Runner uh, Blade Runner if you don't know it occurs in Los Angeles in November 2019 so we are living through the events of Blade Runner right now and I used to look at Blade Runner as a kid um, like I, I didn't get into the film I got into the video game first when I was about 14 and then I got into the film like the film was made before I was born so I got into the film many years after it was made but it just spoke to me I don't know what it was something about the aesthetic or the mood and I used to always re-watch it and say to myself wow I wonder what I'll be doing in November 2019 so I, di- I didn't deliberately come to Los Angeles on a Blade Runner pilgrimage, what happened was just pure chance of fucking luck. There was a thing called Ireland Week, which is it's it's like a thing to promote Irish art in America. I think the Art Council, Arts Council, run it or something. So I was invited over as a, as an Irish writer to Los Angeles with a load of other Irish artists just to kind of talk and showcase what I'm up to, and also. I'm in San Francisco now because I'm doing the same thing here now in San Francisco. So a, a lovely, a lovely stroke of luck. So yeah, I did the Blade Runner shit last week, and it was really interesting. So like, I came to LA going right, okay, I'm in LA, November 2019. You know, does Blade Runner live up to the predictions? Like, not really. Like, there's no flying cars or nothing. Um what I did find interesting is so I was going to places like the Bradbury building and Grand Central Market which are kind of, they feature in the film Blade Runner and there's there was a lot of Blade Runner nerds in cosplay, like dressed like Deckard from Blade Runner and dressed like Pris so people in costume just casually wandering around LA, obviously in LA in November 2019 because of the film Blade Runner and there was also a pop-up bar that I was going to go to but I didn't because it looked kind of shit it was a pop-up bar that was supposed to be Blade Runner themed but it was like 60 quid a fucking ticket and what happened was they weren't allowed to use the Blade Runner branding so then it became a futuristic bar I didn't bother going but the mad thing that I'm noticing is that people are here it's like like Blade Runner for many people like that was the vision of the future that was like Blade Runner was set in 2019 and we all kind of went that's the future like Back to the Future was set in 2013 but it's Back to the Future wasn't being serious about really trying to see what will the future be like but Blade Runner was it was a serious attempt to go here is the dystopian future of 2019 and some of it's right and some of it's wrong but what's interesting is we are now living technically in the future as in 
throughout the 20th century, the, the version of the future that we had in our heads would be 2019, and we're now living it. So what people are fetishizing, myself included, we're, like the people who are celebrating Blade Runner, they're, they're celebrating and, and fetishizing a future that never happened. So it's like... We're fetish... Like, Blade Runner's 1982. So it's not a celebration of the future right now in Los Angeles. It's a fetishization of the past. But it's a past vision of what the future would be. And it's really strange. I've never, I've never experienced that. It's, it's, it's new. It's... It's nostalgia for something that happened... Like, 1982 is what? Fucking... Nearly 40 years ago. It's a nostalgia for the fucking 80s vision of the future, but it's now, and that future hasn't happened. So I don't know what to call that, but it's certainly new. That, that's, a, that's a new thing. I don't know what to call that. Um, so I've got an incredibly long podcast for you this week, because, actually, before I move on, is there something I have to plug? Yes, I have to plug this. Uh, I'm doing a thing called SciCom. S-C-I-C-O-M in the Aviva Stadium in Dublin on the 3rd of December um, I'll be doing a short little chat about creativity I don't know what the deal is for that with tickets whether it's open to the public it might be look it up SCICOM S-C-I-C-O-M Aviva Stadium 3rd of December right so I have a very long podcast for you this week because I got to sit down and chat with a fella called Brian Cross and Brian Cross is, he lives in Los Angeles. He's been living in Los Angeles since the late 80s. Brian is from Limerick. And I'd never met Brian Cross. He's someone, when I started with the Rubber Bandits releasing Limerick Hip Hop, I would have, Brian would have given me an email. So I've been in correspondence with him for nearly 10 years, but I never properly met him. So we sat down for a chat. Brian is... If, if not the most important, one of the most important photographers in hip-hop. Brian uh, found himself in Los Angeles in the late 80s from Limerick. And he was one of the first people to properly photograph, like, N.W.A., Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg, Easy e Ice Cube, Tupac. Like, some of the most iconic hip-hop album covers going it's possible Brian Cross took the photograph on the front he's an, a legend but I, I, I don't I use the word legend a lot this is someone who's hugely important to the history of hip hop and hip hop culture and he's from Limerick and for me it's, it's Brian has always been one of those things that made when I found out about him 10 years ago it just made hip hop to me that little bit more accessible um, to know that there's this African-American art form that I hugely admire and enjoy but the thing is is that when when you're listening to an artwork like that you're trying to appreciate it you love it but you're very conscious and aware that you're an outsider and that it's not yours like hip-hop isn't mine hip-hop is African-American people's cultural expression and I'm a guest and as a guest I'm allowed to appreciate it and enjoy it but it's not mine but the fact that Brian Cross from Limerick is so ingrained and important into the visual culture of hip-hop, into the photographs of, you know, how Tupac was represented in a photograph, how 
Biggie was represented. Brian Cross uh, took photographs of all these artists and was present in the, their earliest careers. He was present with NWA when people didn't know about NWA, when NWA were laughed at, when hip-hop wasn't taken seriously in any way, when it was considered a novelty. Brian Cross was present for all of that. Not, not just the West Coast, but Biggie Smalls and the East Coast and the likes of Outkast in the southern states of America and Damien Marley too down in Jamaica so me and Brian sat down on a porch in Los Angeles Um, I recorded it with quite nicely a mic for each of us on our lapels and then a full stereo mic to record the ambience so it's quite a nice ASMR conversational podcast too the reason it's three hours why is it three hours long um, because it's it's engaging for three hours. This is a podcast. It's not radio. You can stop and pause and move as freely as you like. You can listen to half an hour today and come back to another half an hour tomorrow. So for that reason, I chose not to edit it down. Um, because editing shit down, that's radio language. That's radio talk. Radio has to edit things because they've got a certain amount of time on air. This is a podcast. I don't need to do that. And as well, it's it's it, it's a, it's as a way of preserving and putting out what's essentially kind of a historical document. I speak to Brian for two and a half hours, and it's him telling me about him being present in history, in the history of an art form that I greatly admired and that shaped my life and a lot of people the same age as me. This is him telling stories about what it was like being with NWA, what it was like with Outkast, what it was like with Tupac, and then at the same time, bringing it all back to Limerick City and his identity as a Limerick person, but as well many, many tangents, because the thing with Brian too, he's an aesthete, he's a lover of art, he's a lover of history. So it's a conversation between the two of us that goes on to many tangents and explores hip-hop and culture in general. So let me just double-check now that I don't have anything... I have to plug or say oh shit yeah uh, what else happened I nearly went on the yeah one part of my Blade Runner tour the, was going to go to Warner Brothers to the studio to get a look at the back lot where some of it was filmed but as I was about to go out there Warner Brothers studio went on fire there was a forest fire in Los Angeles so I didn't get to do that um, my book yeah, my book Boulevard, Boulevard Rain it's out in the shops uh, it's number one in the charts thank you so much for everyone who's buying it um, thank you for the lovely fucking feedback I've been getting from you that you're enjoying it that's really encouraging and if you bought it if you wouldn't mind if you did like it if you wouldn't mind going on to fucking Goodreads or Amazon or whatever and writing a little uh, positive review if you liked it um, so that's just one thing one little call to action if you could do that and I can't remember if I put a fucking Patreon request in this interview. So, look, this podcast is supported by you, the listener, via the Patreon page. If you want to support the podcast and help me get a, a wage, really, for doing it and make it my job, which it is, patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast. Um, if, if you can't afford it, give me the price of a pint, price of a cup of coffee once a month. If you can't afford it, you can listen for free. All right. Uh, one last check before I go into the interview because obviously this is done on a balcony and I can't fucking edit it yeah that's it 
all right i hope you enjoyed this interview it's very long so either listen to the whole thing or take it in segments yort yeah very nice guy i like that record man that ep is good man yeah it's great to fucking the thing is with kojak and those younger lads they are able to fucking when i was doing my shit it could only it was only ever received as a joke like when we were rapping even though it was a joke but at the same time I fucking cared deeply about the beats I cared I, I yeah was, but it's is it but it was it's it's a there's a I mean it's a, there's a serious aspect to it you know what I mean even if it's even if you want to say it's satirical yeah uh, that's serious. I mean, that you know. What I mean, that's it's, not like disconnected, or you know. What it's, I mean, it's, it's not idiocy. serious, but there's a thing. It like it's, it's a strange thing with music, and it always bothers me. As soon as and music is unique in an art form, I find. As soon as you introduce humor or comedy into music specifically, it tends to. Drop in its artistic value, whereas you can use humor in painting you can use humor literature literature yeah and all of a sudden it can be elevated like satire often sometimes i get pissed off at the word satire satire if i label something as satire it's like saying it's funny but it's smart right instead of going hold on a second you're allowed to laugh at it but at the same time there's a serious message behind it and it's different levels and i don't know it was something like a song like up the rat up the ass fucking bizarre and it's funny and you're allowed to laugh at it but at the same time no it's I knew what I was exploring like yeah do you know what I mean no I, I mean I I, I, super, I completely I, I mean I was in shock because I was like ah you know when you see somebody say something that you've been in company and said and you no one ever said it like really said it out loud yeah and it's one of those moments where you're just like that's a piece of speech that's like needed to be like there was a we needed that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Like, someone needed to say that. Um, and that was the feeling of it. Like, I was like, fucking hell. I, I, I remember yeah, seeing that shit at Dolan's and being, uh, the tears were running out of my fucking With face. With the fucking, the balaclavas on, the yeah. IRA drummers and shit. Yeah. 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 People didn't like, know how to feel about that at the time. They didn't. Now it's grand. Now you've got like a band from Belfast called Kneecap. Have oh, you seen Kneecap? No. Kneecap are, they're young lads from Belfast. And they're full on balaclavas, and they're just they're fucking up their ass on stage, but but tongue in cheek as well. Right. But in a way that when we were doing it, people didn't know what to do. They didn't know is it okay to laugh at it? Are they really into the rah? But that's the tension in that yeah. is what makes it interesting. You know the I mean? tension it's in it, and, and one thing I always learned, and it was uh, would have been Paul Webb that said it. If you're doing a gig, cause the earlier gigs, if the audience are clapping, that's a good thing. If the audience are throwing shit at you, that's a good thing. If the audience have their back to you and they're at the bar, that's the only bad thing. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know? Yeah, for sure. Um <clears throat> so Brian I so what I did for this interview is I've my own questions obviously, but I, I went to the internet and asked them some questions yeah, I too. Saw some of the fucking questions, yeah. The main the main one is is so you're you're from from Limerick City, same as myself. Yep. And somehow a man from Limerick is, is one of the most <laughs> iconic and important photographers in fucking the history of hip-hop. Me growing up in Limerick as a huge fan of hip-hop, was, I was leafing through all of your photographs not having a clue that a Limerick man was behind them. Like, I'm talking fucking photographs on my wall and I didn't know a Limerick man was behind it. So, how does a, a lad from Limerick in the late 80s, early 90s end up photograph in NWA there's a pit bull just gone past there now with a fucking 
with, with lights on with him. lights all over his neck which is the maddest thing I've seen in LA so far <laughs> um, so yeah I mean that, that uh, I mean that that's it really I guess that's the fucking the, the story or whatever but um, I grew up in Limerick uh, grew up in Park basically grew up out the Dublin Road um, and was interested in art basically um, my man was good at drawing you know I was one of those type of people that was good at drawing and uh, I was good at drawing in secondary school I studied at St. Clement's um, there was a great art teacher there Mrs. Brown um, someone even on Twitter was like ask him about Mrs. Brown um, and I fucking I don't know like I I have this weird th- you ha- I had this weird thing where on some levels it was like there was a lot of things about Limerick that were um like of great interest uh ah, the storytelling and the fucking history like the history that you can taste it in your fucking mouth in the morning you know what I mean like that kind of shit like that I love that like that was I, that's completely informed everything I've ever done really but there was also this kind of real desperate need to fucking get out really you know to yeah. understanding that like there was other things going on in the world but and before that Brian like <clears throat> Like, okay, so I would have found hip-hop in Limerick in the mid-90s, and that yeah. was tough, that was hard. Yeah. I accidentally got given a copy of Home Invasion by my brother. Mm-hmm. Then I had a friend from New York who gave me 36 Chambers, Wu-Tang Clan. That was it, do you know? And other than that, there was Golden Discs, and if you were lucky, yeah. I, I literally had to buy albums. I didn't know who Snoop was. I had no way of finding out. I didn't know yeah. Snoop, Tupac. I had to base it on who has the coolest album cover, and if I'm lucky... Yeah. And luckily I ended up picking the best ones based on covers. Yeah. Uh Warren G regulate like yeah. something about him against the lamppost yeah. made me say, Right, I, I want that. Up, yeah. Do you know? Um wh- how were you lit like so let's like the eighties in Limerick. How yeah. the fuck are you even hearing hip hop? Um well there there'd be the occasional song Well, breakdancing was kind of a thing, you know what I mean? There's footage of breakdancing There's in Limerick breakdancing in Limerick. Four. Yeah. Danny, so Bullman, was, Danny Bullman, Danny Bullman, yeah. when he was a young fella. Shawnee Bullman's yeah. younger brother or whatever. Um, but, so, so there was, there was break, I mean, breakdancing was kind of some kind of a cultural phenomenon. I was telling him, um, when I was in finishing primary school, the two biggest things that happened to us in our world was, one was punk rock, um, and the other thing was Roots came on television. Roots, okay. And... I, in our school in the schoolyard there was two gangs one was the Paddy Punk Rockers and one was the fucking Chicken Georges who were the Chicken Georges now? <laughs> the Chicken Georges the Chicken Georges the Chicken Georges there was a gang in Limerick called the Chicken Georges oh this was there was a gang in St. Patrick's fucking primary school of young fellas like 10 years old that were calling themselves the Chicken Georges because that was like the most you know like when he was he was hung up and they were whipping him and they kept asking him what was his name he kept saying his name was Kunta Kinte. And eventually, you know, I mean, that was like momentous. Like, you know, the, like the, 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 the strange thing that happened in Limerick as well with, uh, with Kunta Kinte's name. When I, I knew nothing about Roots, but I knew that people would call other people, not Kunta Kinte, but Kinte Kunta. It had, in Limerick, it had turned into Kinte Kunta. And I thought, it was a, I thought it was a bad word. I thought it was about cunt. Well, my, I, have a, I have a friend in Limerick. Um... um Afro-Caribbean girl who was there mm. at that time and she, she, she'd tell me like Michelle she'd tell me that you know like no one ever recalled her the N-word yeah 
until Roots. Wow. Which is a tr- crazy flip when you think, like, you know, it's Alex Haley, it's the guy who wrote the Malcolm X autobiography. It's a really important narrative in terms of, like, the last sort of 30 or 40 years for African-American culture or whatever. And when and then, Roots came out as well in America, it was the first time quite, it was the first time slavery had been discussed openly as a discourse on, on media, wasn't it? I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't know. Like, I, I, didn't, I moved here in 1990, so, like... I mean, but yeah, it seems like that's the case, yeah. It seems like, in terms of mainstream media, yeah, it seems like for sure. What, what hip-hop were you hearing in Limerick in the late 80s? I mean, all the good shit. I mean, we, you know, I, I mean... And was, it was, like pub, that, was, it was Public Enemy, was public enemy yes. making it to Limerick in 87? Yes. Who was listening to Public Enemy? Barry Warner would have had it. Uh, Barry Warner as well, it. just said. Barry Warner is, is a very important person for Limerick who doesn't yeah. get enough Nearly enough credit, yeah. Barry Warner was sampling in 1977. He ended up remixing Sound and yep. Vision for David Bowie. Yeah. A real fucking musical pioneer. Like, my, my older brothers remember Barry as just, like, kind of the weirdo goth in town, like, who just knew about everything before it happened. And everyone would wonder, how does Barry Warner know about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre? How does he know about this band? Because there's, no, no, okay. internet. Well, there's here, no internet. No, there's no internet. But th- here's what there was, is everyone went into Eason's on a Thursday or a Friday, and you could buy what we... Tarp used to call them the music comics. Yeah. And it would be the Enemy, Sounds, Melody Maker, like all those magazines. And then they would have like bullet reviews. So it's like, you'll never hear the music, but you'll know the name of the band. You know what I mean? Like Throbbing Gristle. Like, I, that's yeah. how I thought. You know what I mean? I never heard their music, but I knew about them because I, Scritty Politti. Like yeah. years later, I heard the music, but I read about them and that's how I found out about Foucault. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, all you heard stuff. about Foucault through, through Scritty Politti, dude. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I, I, and it was. But that you'd kind know, of a, you'd know Google to go to, so you just know there's yeah, someone called Michel Foucault where, where, and Scrinty Politi, and I haven't even heard Scrinty Politi because I, I, yeah, my brothers talk about um, we had a, some type of Levi's rock and roll anthology at home, and I'd have grown up in a house with Dylan and Bowie, mm-hmm. but my brother, there was a photograph of Sly Stone in it, mm-hmm. and he used to stare at the photograph of Sly Stone, wondering what this man's music sounds like, because the photograph of Sly Stone was so crazy. But he had no way. Like, what's he gonna do? Ring up ninety five FM and go, "Have you any sliced on?" They didn't. I remember ringing Big L, asking him like if I could come down there, and I, I knew that this Motown thing was a big deal. I just was trying to find out more about it. They were laughing me off the phone. But I was like thirteen or something. You know what I mean? Like I was. What does Motown sound like? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, having read about it, <laughs> having read about it, I maybe heard one or two things on Big L. Big what L was, was Big L? Big L was like a pirate station. There was a pirate station and there was a boom in pirate stations in Limerick in the... I suppose this would have been the early 80s. So you had like LBC, Big L. That's like John DeMann. John DeMann was John DeMann got a star. John DeMann One of the highest the compliments I ever got from an older Limerick fella. Who's he, he said you're John DeMann. He listened to my podcast and said to remind him of John DeMann, yeah. John DeMann was classic, man. He'd get on he, there he and read the obituaries every morning out yeah. of the newspaper. And I mean, people religiously listen to that. You know, like people and of a certain age. He used age to say as well, like my brothers would tell me, he, John DeMann used to go on the pirate radio and say, I'm, I'm dying for a bag of chips. Would someone go into Luigi's and bring and me bring a, bag, you a of bag of chips? And a bag of chips yeah. would arrive at the studio. I don't even think Luigi's was there yet. What would it have been? The Golden Grill? The Golden Grill, yeah. Yeah. The Golden Grill, for sure. Yeah. Um, and it was, you know, it was, but, it, but it was a... Oh, and Devereaux, for example. Of course, Owen Devereaux. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Um, and then there we was... We have a lot of legends in Limerick. There's a lot of legends in Limerick, man. Fucking... Come on, man. Yeah. It's Limerick. <laughs> um, Owen Devereaux. John, I know Johnny Marr listens to this podcast. 
So Johnny, I know, knows Owen Devro. Owen Devro is... I, I, uh, I seen Johnny Marr in the, at the fucking Savoy. I don't know what year it was. 80 fucking, I don't know, 83 or 84. And we'd seen him at the SFX the night before. And I knew Morrissey was going to come back out and throw his shirt at a particular moment. So I fucking... I, I, I was... I, I, I went up right up I knew where he was going to throw the shirt and I sure enough went up to the front the Savoy in Limerick if you don't know was uh, it was this incredible venue in Limerick that had an old organ in it yeah. and international bands before they do the European tour would often just yeah. do a warm up gig in Limerick yeah. so Limerick had these amazing <laughs> and he used to wear a, he had a yeah, he used to wear it, his whole thing was uh, uh, and, and what is it called NHS is that what they call it in England the National Health yeah, Service yeah 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 it was NHS chic so he, he would wear like a government issue hearing aid yeah like it would you know where you have the little white like little like pager looking thing in his pocket and he'd have a hearing aid and then he wore the National Health glasses and it was uh, but it was it's it, a terrible I mean, thing the way he's gone now isn't it it's a fucking disaster but he's you know the thing about people like him dude is that they're contrarians and I think it's one of those things where like uh, he's, you know, I, 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 I find it difficult to believe that somebody as intelligent as him says the shit that it's as, as stupid it's, it's a as shame. Stupid as I mean, I, I think contrarianism should stop when it comes to people's rights. Uh, Be on. contrary Obviously, about art, yeah, for sure. But contrary for about, sure. yeah, for sure. Um, but in, in any event, he's a very, I mean, he's a, a compelling. I mean, you know. The story of the Smiths in Los Angeles. Now that's where it gets fucking interesting. I mean, to me, that's that's where you get like they've got a huge weird... Latino following, don't they? They do, and I, I I'm, I'm, I, well, blow my own fucking whistle, but I'm the first person to photograph that scene. And, the, you're uh, the first person to photograph. Yeah, it's come a book afterwards, but I'll tell you the story. But why, why are the Smiths so here, followed by young Latino people? So here we go. Okay, so I, I'll just tell you the story first. So, so I knew this. There's a pre- peculiarly '80s moment. For young Chicanos here, like so, yeah. Depeche Mode and like you know we yeah. had this radio station here called K Rock, but somehow the Smiths more than any other thing, like still like is is a thing. You know, it's like there's a very peculiar connection that young Chicanos have. Like to, you, to, you hear it in uh, you familiar with the Deftones? Yeah. So like Ch- uh, Chino Marino, lead, lead singer of the Deftones, like his biggest influence is Morrissey. Yeah. There's another group, I think they're from East LA called Prayers. Don't know uh, Prayers are fucking unreal. They do a uh, kind of got got rap, but yeah. again, you ask the lead singer of Prayers, who's your influence? It's, it's Morrissey. all Morrissey. Yeah. So uh, uh, they used to have this, uh, just like a. They used to call it the the, the the Smiths Tribute Weekend. And weirdly enough, it was, it was the weekend of fucking Paddy's Day, I remember. This is like 1997 or 1997, 98, I guess. And I convinced uh, Dazed and Confused. So at that time, I was shooting a lot of, like, I was shooting editorial. Like, editorial was how, editorial was the Instagram of those days for photographers. In the sense yeah. that, like, how you let people know you were out there and active and what you were doing was through editorial. And, um, I, yeah. Uh, I convinced him to let me do the story, so I went there anyway, and it was at the Palace, which is a, a venue in Hollywood, big, big venue. And I went to walk in anyway, and I'm just like, man, this is crazy. Mm-hmm. It's all Mexicans. There isn't a single white person anywhere. This is all Mexicans, and everyone's like that rockabilly, but like not quite rockabilly because they're Chicanos. But then 
you don't understand the, the, the history of rock and roll. Would you connect it in any way with, uh, do you know the way within lowrider culture, Chicano lowrider culture, yeah. there's the, 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 the love of all these songs and kind of crooners and that type of thing. Do you see a connection there? Not so much. I mean, it's, it's a connection with, there's a kind of nostalgic aspect to it, for sure. Yeah. But then when you look at, like, uh, the roots of rock and roll in this country, Mexicans are there, man. Yeah, you know I mean that's what La Bamba is about. That's yeah. all real. Like they're, they're a big part, east of, east of LA sound in terms of rock and roll. Like Frank Zappa and them came out. You know, I mean that yeah. they were they were in interaction with that. It was a they're they're you know there's a they do guitars good. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. But the funny shit with this thing anyway was that uh, the the so it's, it's not really the Mink Smiths. Deville. Mink Deville. Yeah, yeah. Another interesting case, but. Uh, the, the, the band isn't uh, the Smiths, obviously. It's this Smiths tribute band called These Charming Men. Yes. Okay. So, you know, maybe they you know... They gig Dolan's. So, maybe you know where this is going. So, so they come out and, of course, they have no idea what they're facing into either. Like, this is their first time in Los Angeles and they're just like, uh, fucking hell. Like, who are these people? And then, about the third song in... I was up close to the stage and I was photographing this fucking huge Chicano guy jumps out of the crowd onto the stage takes a Mexican flag out of his pocket holds it up like this the fucking place goes fucking mental he jumps back into the crowd and these charming men were kind of shook yeah and so and so they were they, had, they were done in the kind of Mancunian yeah do you know what I mean they had the accents and the whole shit soon as the Mexican guy jumps up and puts the puts the flag up and, and then he puts the flag on the on the drum kit. The the these charming men s- stop the lights, lads. And then the Mancunian accent goes off. And then it's like they're from fucking Fingless or somewhere. Dude. Yeah, yeah. He says, yeah, like uh, uh, we're these charming men, and uh, well, uh, we love the Smiths as much as you do, but we have a secret too. And then he fucking I don't know where he got the tricolor dude. But the fucking he guy, pulled out the tricolor. He pulled out the fucking tricolor dude and put it on the drum kit, and it was like. I mean, there was a little tear appeared in my fucking <laughs> eye. I couldn't believe it. Here's the deal, okay? Morrissey is a, a, an immigrant into the dominant culture there. Stephen you know, Patrick the, Morrissey. Stephen Patrick Morrissey. Johnny Maher. Johnny Maher into the Queen, the fucking Moors murderers, the craze, British popular culture writ large. Yeah. But they, they want to fit, but they don't fit. Mm-hmm. They're never going. He's never going to be fucking English. There's no way for him to be English. Yeah. But he have this. It's queered Englishness somehow. Yeah. That's what he's done. This is the same issue for fucking young Chicanos, man. Like the lure of rockabilly feels right on. Like it's like our hair looks good this way. Like we like the and, nostalgia. And, and is it vibe. looking at like Elvis and these icons of America? Yes. Okay. And then the twist of it is, and this was the thing that was like, if I was an anthropologist, that would have been really interesting for me. It was like wandering around that night and talking to kids and just asking them to take their portrait or whatever and all that kind of stuff. Is the asexuality, which was his, yeah. that was his narrative at the time, um, they all bought it. And yeah. so it was all these young Chicano kids with like uh, uh, plucked eyebrows with perfect quiffs and perfect leather jackets that were asexual. It was like, I, it was, yeah, it was, it was Yeah, because the thing know? is now, when I was saying about Prayers, who are the East LA kind of goth yeah. band, their whole thing is, your, your man from Prayers goes, I'm from East LA, I'm in a gang, and I wear nail varnish, right. and this is how it is, and if yeah. you have a fucking problem with it, I'll let you know what the problem is. Like, I don't know if you read Marlon James, 
Do you know that, that no. guy? Uh, he won the Booker Prize there a few years ago, but he wrote this book called uh, History in Seven Killings. I forget, it's about, but basically what it is is like a fictionalized account of the attempted murder of Bob Marley uh, in 1975 in Jamaica. And he, what he, he imagines that the most brutal guys there at the t- t- top of the gangs are dudes that are like queer but repressed. Yeah. And this plays out in the kind of violence that they're capable of by virtue of the fact that they're dealing with these kind of inner struggles that are like, you know, momentous or whatever. He's, he's uh, Marlon James himself is queer. And, and the book is... But it's this notion of like the, the inner... You know, like what you were talking about the other night really resonated with me, but the notion that, like, the only way we're able to express our anger is by going outside the bar and slapping each other and, and calling each other homophobic slurs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, it, it, and, it, and, I mean, that, 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 that's, there's, that's masculinity in some crazy... Yeah. You know, I mean, that, that's how it works. Like, that's yeah. how it works. That's why it's difficult for somebody like Tupac to recognize who he did. Or Nas for Nas to be able to hear it and to be able to accept that and know that if I make a bad move right now this is all going to go pear-shaped because he actually able to understand the geography of how this shoot you know those kind of tacit kinds of ways that people organize themselves and it's it's this it's this absolutely this like um, I mean that's what's so interesting about what the kind of work that you're doing man like it's very important work because of this reason because I, I ask the question like well what's behind that actually <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's like, are you all right? Are you suffering right now? Jesus, huh? Postman coming up. There's a postman there and the he's got a fucking... Really. <laughs> so, you know, what I love about this is like... So we're here in Los Angeles, November 2019. <clears throat> yeah. And it's a very special... It's very special for me because this Thank is you. the... Uh, have a good night. Have a good night, boss. Thanks very much, cuz. I love... Uh, I, I, being in Los Angeles 2019, November, is very special for me because I'm a huge fan of the Blade film, Runner, fucking Blade course, Runner, yeah. right? Yeah. So I'm always... I'm here going, where are my Blade Runner moments? Right there is my Blade Runner moment. We're here in, in a suburb of fucking Los Angeles. The postman comes up and he's got a giant glowing light on his forehead like yeah. a cyborg. Yeah. And we're going, what the fuck is this? It's just the postman. And with it's a Chicano guy. With a light on his head. <laughs> here, have you a fag in here or the fags inside? The fags are... They're here. God bless. I'm smoking American Spirits, which apparently is a healthy cigarette. Yeah. That's how they sort market of. it. Sort of. <laughs> healthy in as much as tobacco can be. I do a light. I do. There's a fancy one for All right, God bless. So, what, what made you decide, I'm going to Los Angeles? In, in 1990, what, what made you go, do you know what, I'm going to go to Los Angeles? Basically, I finished at NCAD in 89. Nine, I think your someone said to me on Twitter today your two things they said about your final degree show in NCAD firstly what they found interesting was you photographed the Plassey River yeah. which my listeners will understand as a, it's Yorty's couch it's yeah. a place where I go to meditate and I look at an author yeah. called Yorty Ahern no, I, absolutely. so you, you photographed this area as your NCAD piece as your I final did. year piece I did I, I tell you what I thought was interesting about it and maybe this is a thing that you'll get a kick out of but the thing about Plassey uh, during uh, the occupation of, of Ireland was that Plassey was a kind of a no-go area because it was too it was pastoral mm-hmm. very beautiful yeah but the British troops wouldn't go for a walk there because they were too easily ambushed 
Was so it because it, of the river or? It's just because it was too many ways to get away. Do you know, like okay, you, could, yeah. you could go over the, the old bridge, you could jump in a yeah. boat, you could go north, you could go south. So it was, it was pastoral, you know, it had this kind of, you know, classic kind of Irish touristic kind of trope, classic. Yeah. Like Dunas or whatever, you know, it's like, yeah. it's like beautiful <laughs> river, green. But then it was also a kind of autonomous zone, like you have like this. So I was interested, what I was interested in is like, how do you make photographs of a landscape that are peculiar, like to somebody who's really familiar with it, with that landscape? Like, is it possible to make a landscape where you can tell that, the, that it wasn't an, you know, like in, the, in a sense that photography a lot of times can be used by like occupying forces as a way to like map or measure or yeah. you know like what, what, what's the inverse like how, how do you make photographs of somewhere where it could only have been made by somebody who's really familiar with the territory yeah and so and I took Plassey as the example so I would go down did Plassey. you take a photograph of the, the Castle Troy I did it's in the main the kind of frontispiece or whatever like. but you know what I heard about that is so if you look at the castle that is Castle Troy in the Plassey yeah. River there's a huge hole in the side of it there is yeah because it was a garrison apparently Cromwell himself blew that hole with a cannon as a, as a kind of a, a sign <laughs> that's what I heard that's now again it's one of these little yeah, facts no, I heard no, in no, a fucking Limerick. pub like yeah which is pub facts which is good though I like pub facts because how do you you know that's do you want to know the maddest pub fact I ever heard what that if, if a pig ever and I heard this where did I hear this it was a pub near fucking Gary Owen in Limerick and a fella said that if, if a pig goes into water the pig would slit its own throat with its trotters no <laughs> yeah no <laughs> where was that like what's, what's the name of the pub opposite the Marcus Field the Black Battery yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> Black Battery facts <laughs> no I don't, yeah I guess I mean in the notion but no I don't know and uh, someone said you you were focusing on the, the Limerick Soviet in the late eighties. Yeah, 80s, yeah. Which I, no I tried one to wrote, no one, no. I, I tried to write to these people that were celebrating it this year and be like, hey, you know, like we were actually celebrating this in the eighties, you know, like because um, if people don't know, Limerick in in nineteen nineteen, yeah, tried its hand at becoming an independent independent Soviet mm-hmm. state, mm-hmm. and it didn't. It worked for about two weeks, printed their own money, the whole shebang. The thing you were saying to Tubbery the other night, you know, in this. Anyway, the thing you were saying to him was, you know, why aren't we, why can't we be the fucking, uh, you know, like, why can't we be the fucking, uh, the good example? Like, for the world. Well, you know, we're only this tiny country. Well, sure. What, what does it matter about plastic bags? Man, when you look at people like Terence McSweeney, when you look at yeah. things like the Limerick Soviet, yeah. they're just like, come on, man. Our cultural Terence McSweeney, man. But even look going around this neighborhood, do people have their Halloween decorations up? Halloween Samhain. It's a yeah. fucking. Irish and fucking Scottish holiday like good ideas you know that's a real currency we have that we do that well we should do more of it you know what I mean why would we not want to do that with everything like for example like what the fuck is that like you know because when we start thinking the other way and we start monetizing and we start acting like and thinking like accountants that's when you end up with the fucking cervical fucking shit that's when you end up direct provision complete direct provision another fucking perfectly good example that you're pointing out well, the thing is with direct provision and, and, and what I try and point out to people, direct, direct provision and emergency accommodation in Ireland, like, the important thing for people to realise is that it's a for-profit system. Yeah. There are huge corporations invested in direct provision yeah. and if direct provision leaves, a lot of very powerful people stop making money. For sure. And it's the taxpayers' money that goes into feeding these giant corporations. Same with emergency accommodation. You look at emergency accommodation, 
all these fucking hotels were built at the time of the Celtic Tiger. Recession hits, there's no one there for hotels. Miraculously, a lot of hotels have full uh, occupancy for years and years and years with either direct provision or people in emergency accommodation instead yeah. of building them houses. Yeah. It's a racket, but tax money funded in, so it's neoliberalism. Privately the funded prisons in this country. And, you know, and, the, and the cons who are doing the private prisons, the, the people, the big corporation are Aramark. They do all the catering in, for direct provision in Ireland. Yeah. They also do the catering for the private prisons in America. And they do the, the, a lot of the fucking for universities. Ice. And for the fucking universities, yeah. UL in Limerick. Aramark I mean, you know, get into canteen. the panoptic shit, like, you know, here we go. Hotels, universities, prisons. Well, sure. So, Jeremy Bentham. Jeremy fucking Bentham. And his panopticon. I went to. I actually. When I, when Jeremy I went Bentham, to, who was so mad that when he died, he demanded that. He he, was, I will donate my money to the hospital if you put my. No, the University of the, London. The University of London. Yes, if you put my I studied dead, at the Slade. That's what I was about to tell you. My, my dead corpse his needs dead to is, be on the board of directors. It's still there. It's still there, and they still wheel him out every, every year for the Bentham lecture. And they a put him in the back. A corpse. A corpse. I mean, he's like. Um, what are you saying? The, 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 the bog. The bog mummies. It's kind of the like bog that, bodies. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a bit like that. You know, it's kind of like the skin seems stretched over. But then the other thing is they have he's he's pickled, like they have his organs are pickled in, in jars next to him in the cabinet. But the mad thing is, if the Brits who consider themselves to be such an advanced colonial society, if they were to look at something similar in what they consider to be, I would say, a tribe in Africa, or they bring out the preserved body of the elder, the savages. And the Brits are doing it with fucking Jeremy Bentham's corpse, bringing them out for the past 200 years so that a hospital yep. or university can get money. Fucking madness. No, and they're... But they're, yeah, we're gone on a mad tangent here. <laughs> Pe- people have their tongues hanging out for stories about Easy E. Yeah, no, I know, and we're talking about the black battery. Anyways. <laughs> uh, come here. So you get to Los Angeles, 1990. The big question I was asked is, how the fuck does a lad from Limerick end up being one of the first people to photograph NWA, Cypress Hill. How does a lad from Limerick find himself in that situation where you're entrusted with your art photographer and your cool? Uh, well, so I, 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 I went back to Limerick after NCD. I worked out in the Dublin Road. At the, there was a fucking video shop on, in Frank Hogan's. I worked there. And it was fucking horrible. And I nearly became an alcoholic. I was, it wasn't a good moment. And uh, I decided like I, I should go to grad school, and then I, ha- I had done a year, uh, like a, a quarter of an exchange at a, at the Slade, that's at the University of London, which yeah. that's how I seen the Jeremy Bentham body and whatnot. That's part of the mythology of that school, and at, at NCAD at that time, and I mean to be honest, like the visual arts education in general in Ireland at that time was full of uh, uh, English, you know, uh, uh, professors. Yeah, but but, but people that had like. Had gotten a master's over there or whatever. And we still had the, this is when we were still had the, the fucking inferiority complex or whatever, and we were like they're better than us and they're more advanced in their education system. And we were coming out of a kind of academic, you know, like in the, you know the late sixties into the seventies, they weren't even teaching modern art in Irish art schools yet. No, all and academic so, art. So um, I, I, anyway, I, I decided going to England wasn't an option. I was offered a scholarship to go to Amsterdam to study the Kunst Academy. I was nervous that I uh, was going to smoke away grad school, so I said... I, Hold on, is, is that for Brian or is that for me? Brian, do you want, do you want the beer or...? No, or I have a cider. You're on the cider, yeah. you are, all right. Um, 
and so then I, I was interested in uh, there was two people I was interested in studying with man there was I was interested in studying uh, with, with uh, uh, Edward Said um, who was teaching at uh, is Edward Said the uh, post-colonial fella Orientalism yes yeah. I have a book I have a book uh, by him uh, it's on post-colonialism in Ireland yeah yeah. he's a, a Palestinian scholar amazing amazing guy I thought his name was Edward Said up to this it moment it looks like Said it yeah. looks like Said if you, if you agree I, with it Said, I love yeah. the fact that I have a book called Edward Said <laughs> um, Luke Gibbons gave me that book I mean, there was a couple of books I was given, like, the last few years I was at, N- at NCAD. Someone gave me The Wretched of the Earth by Franz Fanon, which was a really important book. And someone gave me Orientalism by Edward Said. So, obviously, Franz Fanon is dead. But Edward Said was teaching at uh, Columbia. But I didn't have the right... I couldn't go study with him. And then the other dude I was interested in was this dude called Alan Sakula, who was, like, a, like kind of the- like a theory-based photographer who was teaching at Cal Arts. <coughs> and... His whole thing was around, uh, like, labor. Like, he was interested in the relationship between... Uh, I mean, this is the work he was working at at the time, was the relationship between kind of containerization as an idea and the kind of the end of a certain kind of labor politics. Yeah. But because longshoremen were very powerful figures in labor. Because if you wanted to get something onto a boat... You had to do a deal with them, and they yeah. owned the ports. Even they didn't really own the ports, but like, is this England now or America? America. Oh, sure, of course. The Wire season two with the stevedores. Stevedores. Yeah. Bingo. And you know, even during World War Two, like, you know, there was the, they were they were progressive. They were interracial. They were, I mean, they were mostly communists. I mean, they were mostly folks that got you know the blacklist era. They were people that got destroyed, like whose lives were destroyed. They were excommunicated, mm-hmm. or you know, destroyed. In, 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 American life but he was interested in how containerization as an idea was sort of pulling the rug out from under this long long labour tradition he'd grown up in San Pedro and he was a, a, a photographer kind of <laughs> photographer historian I was making work about like the canal bank and thinking like yeah. my, my old man started work on the canal bank thinking about the canal bank thinking about Plassey thinking about how do you talk about history and landscape and he like I just felt like I, his work resonated most with me so I said I'll go there but of course at the same time I'm listening to you know Mantronics Ice-T Public Enemy BDP NWA whatever like that We by that point you could find like Tarpy was very good at finding records at this the, is our buddy Paul Tarpy Paul, Paul Tarpy is uh, yeah. he followed Scary Area around and managed to document Scary Area's yeah. early career the early, early photography. Scary Area but this is long before that now um Tarpy had a, a knack to be able to. He, the Virgin Megastore opened at that era down the Keys in Dublin, and he, Tarpy was the king of the 99 center. It's probably 29 cent bins in that Ta- era. Tarpy is, is, is. Paul Tarpy is one of the men that's. I think I know my hip hop. And then I speak to Paul <laughs> Tarpy, and he scares the living shit out of me. <laughs> He's. Well, you know, like, the weird thing about hip hop, man, if, of, of, of people of that generation, is that it was, never, it was never that kind of music where it was just enough to be a fan. You had to become like the most, you know, you had to be the most lit advocate. Yeah. You had to know everything about it. And the thing is that... Which is something that doesn't exist anymore now because no. you have, like back then, before the internet, if you knew shit about music, you were really valuable. There was serious cultural capital. Now, yeah. if you tell someone about fucking, no, just, tell someone about BDP now, straight onto Spotify, yeah. and the <laughs> algorithm will give yeah, yeah, you yeah. rare shit. Yeah. And it loses its cultural value. Yeah, totally. And this, and this was an era where, like, yeah, like you, you know, you know, that that was a real cultural cachet to have, you know, to know about records like that or to know about the history of certain people and groups. And 
for us, actually, you know, you were saying like the record covers. To be honest with you, in those days, the way we used to figure out like if a record was good or not was who was the special tanks on the back. It's like, oh, they're tanking BDP. That means they're cool with BDP. That means it's going to be that kind of record. Because there wasn't even... How do you tie that in with the, uh, the early 90s hip-hop type of track? Like on Home Invasion about Ice-T, he's got a track where he's literally rapping everyone he's cool with. Yeah. He's going, I'm down with BDP, I'm down yeah. with Public Enemy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, shout-out track. He was going straight up, uh, I'm down with Tim Dog, even though Tim Dog dissed yeah, LA. Tim Dog was in Ultramagnetics. Yeah. Tim Dog's from the Bronx. Yeah. He's from New York. Ice-T is from New York. Of course, yeah. Do you know? Yeah. So... Um, I mean, it was, I mean, you know, it was somehow there was this sort of internal dialogue or cosine kind of culture that existed in hip hop. And that was the way you, well, in the same way as a little bit after that, when people start to really think about samples, it doesn't just become who's the name of the artist on the front of the record. It's like, okay, who the fuck is playing drums? Who did the arrangement? Who's the bass player? Oh, the bass player is, oh, really? Oh, okay. Well, then I got to buy this record then. Yeah. Do you know, is is that same and and that's that's what hip-hop was in that period was it was a kind of like a, a kind of like it's a kind of proto-technology it was like a way of thinking about history it's a way of thinking about like contemporary moment and for me it's it's the ultimate postmodern art form hip-hop for me yeah i mean we can argue about the postmodern, but i would say it's probably the most important popular art since world war ii yeah, that's, what I, that, that's where I would be with it. But yeah, I mean, in terms of influence, in terms of like the way it's changed, the way we think about the world, the way we actually interact with with, with information. I mean, every, everything. Um, and so you know, like, so I was doing that. Like, I was, you know, as curious and as engaged as Tarpy. And, and there's another cat, Paul, Paul McCarthy, who's who's there's another dude, Mark Dyke and Valerie Connor. And. And then I had the chance to come to, to CalArts. I'd, I'd gone to San Francisco in 88 on a J-1 visa and lived in the mission and seen, like, a lot of stuff, you know, like, up close. But, like, I never thought, like, that, I didn't even know that was, like, even a job. I mean, it wasn't a yeah. job. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't a job. Even, even for photographers here at that time, no one was just shooting hip-hop. I mean, that didn't exist yet. Yeah. And so I came here. And then, really, it was while I was at CalArts, um, this urban theorist called Mike Davis came to the school um, turned out he was he was Irish American guy really smart and, uh, and a historian and he had a young Dublin wife who was desperately homesick as was I and so he started inviting me over to the house and he was working on this book called City of Quartz and City of Quartz um, I mean for folks that don't know is like a really important in terms of actually books about cities it's like it's a, you know, it's probably the best book about Los Angeles that's been written. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, hanging out with Mike and arguing. And the other thing was Mike worked as a truck driver for years. It was the, it was the union that paid for him to go to university in the first place. But he was an activist since the 60s and had lived in West Belfast and everything else. But um, out of arguments, like his notion, you know, he would have been like your older brother, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like where it was like, okay, protest music, it's either... Dylan, do you know what I mean? Going back to Pete Seeger or whatever, like that yeah. that thread, or it was Coltrane, yeah. which is like a whole other thing. But like this rap shit, what the fuck is that? Like that, yeah. it's these a bunch of young fellas throwing money at the camera, like no, or a bunch of dudes with guns, like no, yeah. And where I was like, no, dude, like you need to listen to this, yeah. Like this, because I always uh, I was asked before about uh, 
why do Irish people love hip hop? And I say, listen, because we, we grew up on the wolf tones. I said, yeah. come out your black and tans, come out and fight me like a man. That's fuck the police. For sure. It's the same Dude, fucking song. The Limerick Rake is fucking too short. I mean, the Limerick <laughs> Rake is like, the Limerick Rake by the Dubliners, listen to the lyric. It's about a guy that lives off of women. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, come on. And well, t- you know, too and short and for you, if you don't know, he's <laughs> uh, an Auckland rapper and he yeah. was the first one to, to really rap about pimping. Yeah. That was his thing. Yeah. You know, um, but no, for sure. I mean, the, you know, there's, I mean, but I have to be honest, like, from, you know, in that, in that moment, I mean, this is just one of the weird kind of circling backs that it wasn't like I was listening to NWA thinking about the fucking wolf tones. I wasn't. I was, yeah, I was yeah. in some weird way running away from the wolf tones, I would say. In yeah. Italy, or do you know what I mean? Like this kind of conservative. Well, the wolf tones weren't cool in, in the 80s either. No. I mean, I mean, it's it's a it's a it's an interest. It's a good now, cultural now come kind out of black recovery. Yeah, that'll be played in a hipster club in Dublin, though, for sure. And it should be. And I mean, what the Wolf Tones were doing in retrospect. I mean, you know, like I don't know. There's a weird way that a lot of stuff that happened in that period has been is is being recovered now in an interesting way, which I think is really important. Actually, it is important because yeah. the thing is, the Irish mainstream media, because it was in the context of the war in the north. Like the Wolf Tones were not being Wolf Tones in the way in the way that in the way that the the radio Sex Pistols were getting to number one in Britain and they wouldn't say that they were number one. Yeah, the Wolf Tones were getting to number one in Ireland and they wouldn't say they were number one. Yeah, that happened with Christy Moore. Happened with Christy as well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, like anyone that had the audacity to speak about uh, what actually was going on in the North in that period was was getting punished. Yeah, basically, and honestly. Not to be fucking weird about it, but I mean, there are times when, because since I have the fucking iPhone and the, I have the, the RTE app now, so late at night I listen to the morning news and then when I wake up in the morning I put it on again and I listen to it. To be honest, in this moment particularly, it's actually nice to have a, you know, version of Trump from 6,000 miles away as opposed yeah. to like a version of Trump where he's like right in front of you. Um, but... Uh, you know, I, it still shocks me actually just how derisive and um, difficult it can be to actually try to speak openly and straightforwardly about that era, um, especially for people that were, uh, you know, Section Thirty One or whatever was affected them directly. Yeah, still don't get the. What was, the, what was the, Section Thirty One? So Section Thirty One is the the Irish <coughs> uh, version of. Um, you, you know, if, if you were considered, in, if you were part of a listed organization that was considered sympathetic to the forces of paramilitarism in Ireland, you weren't allowed to speak on TV or the radio. So that's why Jerry Adams had the fucking. So that's why you had the weird voiceover which, fucking. Which is the maddest thing that it's ever so happened. So bizarre. But that was kind of later, that came later. Through the 70s and 80s, those people just were invisible. You never heard directly from them, you heard them paraphrased. And you know, and this on Fublux, that was this, really. So yeah, you 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 either you you bought them Fublux in town on a Saturday, or you whatever pub you went to. If you was in a, if you lived in a working class neighborhood, someone would come around and sell the newspaper, and that was the only way you could find out. Yeah. The funny thing is, though, is that like there were so many things. It was like the Catholic Church. There were so many things that mainstream Irish political life couldn't explain in that moment because there were things you couldn't say that when you actually read on Fublux in that area, you were like, oh. So that's what's happening. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I have this weird like, um, but I but I see you know I I, I heard Michael Noonan on 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 Morning Ireland 
I don't know, I suppose a year ago, and the hate and the derision and the way he spoke to the lady from Sinn Féin, I was fucking appalled. I was yeah. like, man, put that guy in a hole, man. Bring him back to the Crescent and, and, and put him a dig a big ditch and fucking let him into it. Honestly, I, I was just, I was in shock. And, you know, but I mean, that, that was that period. I mean, it, and when you're used to the notion of uh, speech somehow that is considered inappropriate or a threat to the state. Yeah. Well, then the fucking public enemy sounds like fucking money to your ears. Exactly. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you're like, so you're, oh, I was waiting for this. You know, like. <laughs> so you fight the power for you fight takes on a different fucking meaning. You can contextualize it as an Irish yeah. person. My ninety-eight. So, so my ninety-eight was seventeen ninety-eight. When when you get to <laughs> when you get to fucking to Los Angeles, yeah. How how the fuck do you end up meeting NWA? Mm. And what do end up? People are asking, what the fuck do NWA think of a, a young lad from Limerick with a camera? So, okay, uh, let's do a little quick corrective. Earlier, you posted four photos. You said. How did a lad from Limerick make these four photos? <coughs> the photo of NWA I didn't make. Is that not yours? No. Okay. And I've never I've photographed all the members, individual members of NWA separately, but I never photographed NWA okay, together. Okay, so it was afterwards. Okay. No, I I mean I was photographing them in that period, but I but I for whatever reason I never photographed them together. And I'm not the kind of photographer that's like I was never there with like a bucket list or whatever. I was always like, Jesus, I can't believe it, I'm getting to photograph fucking easy. Yeah. Anyway, Basically, did you have to go down to like you went down to Compton and photograph? Yeah. Look, you know, because a, like, a lot of a lot of from fucking. I'm from the Dublin Road, man. I, n- I never, I never looked at any part of any city as a no-go area. Yeah. I went to the north. I went to fucking Brixton. When people said you shouldn't go to Brixton, or when I first came to America, I lived in the fucking Mission. I worked in Hunters Point areas that people from San Francisco were like, "What?" You know, I mean, I, I, I felt like that was your as an artist, like you. And like we're that, supposed that to was, go there, like you know, like that's that the, was another another theme of questions tonight. Which it's as a Limerick person, I could tell that some of the questions had a barb behind them, and it's something that in my early career as well was was thrown at us. Which is Limerick has a very gangster image. Mm-hmm. Limerick, like mm-hmm. look, Limerick is 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 the, the way when someone from Dublin says, "What's Limerick?" Like I say, Limerick's Tala, same size as Tala. Limerick is Tala. Yeah. So Limerick has got this image, which. It's not conducive with the reality of Limerick. No, not really. Not at all. But at the same ah, time, people are saying... So, I mean, I've seen crazy... I mean, I did yeah, see crazy we've all seen stuff. crazy shit in Limerick. But, but like... I'm not I having it. When, f- when people say Stab City, I get very bothered by it. Because it's not it Stab City. It makes me laugh, but I'm, diff- I'm different too. Because I remember kind of how it started. And I remember like... I remember... I remember Actually, you were saying to me the other night... Because we, we, we were we talking... We should have that story. We should, we should. How did... So the version that I heard is that Limerick got called Stab City because in the late 70s, the IRA were training Lebanese guerrillas up in the Clare Hills and Limerick. Scarif. Two of them got stabbed. No. What happened? No. Um, okay. So, yes, the Irish government was training Libyan pilots at Shannon to, be, to fly commercial jets. So... Gaddafi had a load of, 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 of young Libyan pilots that were mili- trained in military, Top mm-hmm. Gun type of fellas, you know, like that would dr- fly those kind of planes, which isn't the same as flying a commercial jet. Ireland at that time, obviously, you know, anything at all that we could fucking glean a few bob from, 
uh, into Shannon was considered like a fucking win. You know, like, it's like doing it you know, now the, the, with no, CIA the, fucking. The, oh well, I mean, of course, rendition. now we're like, now we're like, we don't, we don't give up. You know, we, 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 now we're flying any any fucking bunch of young fellas out to fucking the Middle East is perfectly acceptable. Uh, 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 yeah, CIA flying fucking people after secret fucking torture sites and shit. But in, the, in those days, there was only two people that were using Shannon. The fucking Russians were using Shannon to fucking refuel on the way to Cuba. And the fucking Libyans were using Shannon to fucking... And they were all working out in Shannon, and it was just... Aeroflat. Aeroflat, yeah. Yeah. And so, there was, so anyway, I mean, I was only 12 or 13, which makes it like, I suppose, to the late 70s, early 80s. No, it's, no, it's definitely the early 80s. I'd say, I'd say it's 82, 83. I'd have to ask now my old man or someone that worked. Kevin Barry would know. Yeah. And basically, they used to come into town, and of course, they were, you know, fucking liberal, man. Anyone fucking different, just everyone would have spotted them straight away. Like, you yeah. Know? And of course, they used to hang out together. There was a bunch of dudes. Probably didn't speak English that great. I was too young. I didn't. I seen them, but I didn't. You know. But we used to all go to. There was this bar called the Courtyard, which was off uh, before the Pink Elephant, and it was the only place you would hear what they used to call disco, but basically black music. Yeah. In Limerick at that time it was this. Buddies you would for sure Buddies was always like it and, But it was kind of Young fellas wouldn't wander into buddies like, mm-hmm. It was kind of like a, That was another Tulsi But the courtyard was kind of a new place And it was kind of modern And it was a little dance floor And it was say, a disco ball And whatever You could have a drink And it, and it was new And it was close enough to like the roundhouse like, It was kind of down yeah. that side And you could get in And, and we were I played rugby But I was I, I say I was 13 or 14 And I, I was big so I, I, you know, they wouldn't ask you for an ID or whatever because there was no IDs. I looked old enough, so I could yeah. and have a few points. And have you any ID? I have an ID getting in here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> be wide now, be wide. Walk in, walk in. <laughs> Sit down over there now, I lord your point. Say nothing. Anyways. Um, That's pure trout and no crack. <laughs> old Limerick accent there now. And so we fucking, we used to hang out there. And the Libyans used to hang out there because of the music, you know? Yeah. And they were very glamorous, like. There was fellas that were olive-skinned, sallow-skinned, looked like the head of suntan, dark hair, looked after themselves. They were fucking pilots. But they were pilots fucking in Limerick in fucking 1982 or something. You know what I mean? What yeah. the fuck? <clears throat> Anyways, uh, it's Christmas Eve. Uh, I guess it was 1982. Um, this Libyan cat... Uh, was get up on I suppose up there where Cusick's fish shop there was I don't know what's that Glentworth Street or whatever what street that is but he was up there that's, there was a taxi rank there and he was up there getting a taxi with his young girlfriend young Limerick girlfriend I think she was from South Hill I think and uh, her boyfriend fucking came down and fucking stabbed your man into the eye and into his brain and killed him stone dead left him on the ground with the fucking screwdriver on him uh and it was, you know, it, it, the 80s, you know, the 80s is a crazy time in Ireland because there is this sort of cataclysmic violence happening. I mean, there's people starving themselves to death. I mean, there's all this crazy shit. But, like, that kind of street violence was very rare. Like, you didn't, yeah. you, you know what I mean? Like, there wasn't... So it would have stayed on the news for a few days. Oh, man. And it was, th- there was something visceral about the notion of, like, a screwdriver through your eye into your brain was kind of like... Yeah. That was something... You know, that was like beyond VHS level violent, you know, beyond Because it's a mad thing level. that that survives because there's a, there's a thing in Limerick whereby they, we used to always say if someone had a knife 
they were never going to do anything with it. It's the fella who's got the screwdriver, the fella who's got the, the tool that if the guards catch him, he can say that he's, he's a carpenter. That's yeah. the person who's dangerous. But the person oh, yeah. with the knife is showing off. Yeah. yeah. And knives weren't... Do you know, you had to go to England to get a knife, like... Yeah, you know I mean, you can't. didn't go up to Nestor's to buy I a still, fucking knife. I still, to this day, I have a, a, a butterfly knife at home yeah. that was given to me. No, and that was the kind of thing you, secondary school, like everyone was. Yeah, <laughs> but very illegal. <laughs> yeah. I was given a butterfly knife. I, I traded it for fucking, I think I actually traded it for a dog pound CD for Whoa. a butterfly knife, which I still have the butterfly knife. I just had it because I wanted to flick it in my yeah, bedroom, no, do you know course, what I mean? And, yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, mad fucking illegal and... There was no knives in, in Nimerick. There was kitchen knives, but you couldn't get a fucking flick knife. You couldn't get that. No, and I don't... I dare say, I don't know that necessarily Limerick... I mean, Limerick was, was geographically challenged because it was a large working-class city in an era of 30% unemployment where there was a lot of, like, you know, generation upon generation of people that never had a job, yeah. that were living in, you know, I mean, for the most part, fucking squalor. You know, all the fucking usual tropes about Irish fucking poverty and unemployment and everything... Yes, we had lots of it, okay, but the, but the fucking issue was on a Saturday night, after a fucking feed of fucking drinks, everyone poured out onto the same street, yeah, O'Connell Street. And, and I mean, not even a big street, I mean, f- 10 blocks of O'Connell Street. So I don't know if you're, you, I mean, you probably don't remember, but like in the Pat Grace's fried chicken era, like when KFC, when this. It's when now Grace, the chicken hut and it was the KFC. Chicken hut. Yeah. It was KFC before and then it became Pat Grace for a while and went back to KFC. It, 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 was, a, it, was, a, it was an actual KFC franchise, wasn't it? Or it was an actual no. He he had the KFC franchise. In but I, Ireland, I heard the mythology he in Limerick. Out. He fell out with him, but yeah. he stole their recipe. And now in Limerick, yeah. we have the chicken hut, which is yeah. like a preserved fucking like this. <laughs> no one fucks with the chicken hut. Like the chicken well, hut will not be allowed to leave Limerick, and they have the greatest chicken gravy known to man. But they stole in that, in that they era, remixed. They, took, they remixed it. Yeah, they took KFC yeah. remix and said, "This is yeah. Limerick now, and we have a new thing, yeah. and it's Limerick chicken, and you yeah. can fuck off." Yeah. And then uh, the, the, the kind of, you know, entry-level Pat Grace's chicken was the fucking snack box, it was called. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, people were getting fucking murdered for fucking snack boxes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it was basically like every fucking maniac in Limerick was poured onto the same street and then there was people up there innocent people basically buying fucking snack boxes and if you didn't want to give your snack box after your feet of points to some dude with a bicycle chain you were liable to get a fucking slap of a bicycle chain across the fucking forehead and you get your fucking snack box taken in yeah that level of stuff was happening but somehow the the Libyan thing made like a See, it's called headlines. It's headlines, it's, yeah. It's like I said, if the story r- r- came to me as these international top fucking marines, or as I was told, they were like the elite of the fucking... Uh, it was the, the PLO, I heard. I heard it was the PLO, but they were at some elite, and it's like, these are lads who are crack fucking military lads around the world, and they couldn't do one night in Limerick, and they got killed. And that's how we got stuck oh, with this name, name Stab yeah. City. Yeah, no, I, that's not the way I remember it, but... But the, I mean, the, there, it's not that there wasn't. I mean, you know, the eighties is interesting for this as well. There, the Ra were training people up, up well, in the, the hills. The Ra was fucking ISIS in that era, man. I mean, yeah. we were the fucking scourge of the planet. Like you couldn't fucking say the name. I mean, when I first came here, I would say I'm Irish, and people, you know, what people would do. What they go? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're like, what am I supposed to do with that? Like the Irish yeah, caravan well, cocktails. Yeah, come on. I, I remember going to anti-Iraq uh, war demonstrations, and there was a woman in front of me that had a. Uh, 
a banner that said, the only car bombs I want are Irish ones. And I was like, um, you don't know what that means. <laughs> I was just like, no, but it's like people here drink black and tans. Mm-hmm. You know, where they mix, mm-hmm. we'll say, Smittics or whatever. I say to Yanks, how would you feel the- if I was drinking an SS? You know what I mean? Like, it's the same shit. Then, like, nah. um, So the, 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 the initial question... We're still there. We was, still haven't answered it. So the question was, did <laughs> growing up in Limerick uh, make it okay for you to be going to places like Compton and Watts? Did, did it... Because... Did it, you said to me the other night the fact that you were Irish meant that you got a level of curiosity and acceptance whereas if you were from yeah. Beverly Hills if you if you were yeah. a white person from just, yeah, California just, yeah. you wouldn't have gotten the way I mean it wasn't it wasn't you it was more difficult to place me um, I had a really weird accent which yeah. was, to them was like what and then there's some notion somehow that like there's a kind of glam you know the deal like, there's a kind of glamour for somebody that come from really far away that's yeah. that actually knew something about rap could have a con- intelligent conversation about it because this is also a time when rap is not accepted no dude you, there was no rap on the radio there was no you couldn't even like to even have a club it was like rap was whoa. considered f- novelty music it wasn't taken on one seriously. level it was taken it wasn't taken seriously considered novelty and on another level it was considered oh here is just another expression of black and brown youth you know malaise and violence do you know what I mean and uh, it, you know it's, it's either we're terrified of it or it's a joke yeah um, but there was no such thing as like actually no you know this is the most serious thing that's happening in the culture for the yeah. last 50 years and we can see it now and we can clearly now contextualize it as very yeah. very important protest music yeah. so like when you know when i met ice cube and i, I you know i remember the first time i interviewed i'd him. say he was all right ice cube comes across as a because he, he didn't he study architecture in college he studied draftsmanship because before this I, I was i was before we started talking i was pitching to you Lads who I reckon are completely sound, and I reckon Ice Cube is a gent, I reckon Ice T is an absolute gent, and I reckon DJ Quick and Warren G are also lovely, lovely lads. Yeah. Easy, lovely guy. Was he? The, yes. The thing I would say about Cube that made me kind of bummed out. You know, I gave Ice Cube a Harley. Oh, did you? So, I have a song called Pure Awkward from 2008. Okay. And the lyric in the song is. It's, it's a song about a lad from Limerick who goes to Compton and finally gets to meet his heroes. But what happens is Ice Cube tries to shift him. And the lyric is, It's a Monday, I got up pure early. I showed Ice Cube the proper way to swing a Harley. And then a year later, I don't know how it happened, we ended up supporting, this is before Horse Outside or anything, we ended up supporting Ice Cube in Tripod in Dublin. Oh, wow. So we were like, we got to fucking meet Ice Cube. So we met Ice Cube. And I got to chat with him And I gave him a Hurley That had his name And a hash leaf on it uh-huh. And he thought it was a shillelagh But fuck it That was my That was your That was my moment. one ice cube meeting Yeah um, No I remember You know like um, The thing with ice cube that, I, I, that that sort of bums me out When I think about him now Is like I was really unhappy With the Straight out of Compton film I just thought that was Fucking low blow Unfair Low dumb. blow on who? Easy yeah, they clowned the guy and they made him into like a kind of caricature of himself that he wasn't. And I, he came across as unbalanced and aggressive and aggressive, unbalanced, kind of fidgety, like somebody who smoked crack, kind of. And he wasn't any of that actually. He was a very, very, very smooth, interesting, curious working class fella that was clearly a hustler. They, they played him as as a, as an Uncle Tom to Jerry Heller. Yes, again, I don't buy that shit. Jerry Heller, problematic figure. Clearly, yeah. but uh, 
his relationship with the I mean I'm the I'm the only one who has photographs of the two of them together weirdly enough I don't know how like I have a lot of photographs of Easy that I made uh, but he was the first person to give me a proper break where I I actually you know the first album cover that I photographed I I mean I had photographed both House of Pain and Freestyle Fellowship for album artwork prior but the first album cover to actually come out was Did did House of Pain cuz I don't I I I don't know how Irish they really are well no did they did they latch on to you because you were a paddy? No, Muggs said because Muggs is an Irish, he's Lithuanian. No, uh, no, actually, Muggs is Italian. Italian. Muggerud. Muggerud. Okay, yeah. and uh, fucking Everlast. What's his real name? Uh, Schroeder. 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 Yeah. Schroeder, which Schroeder. doesn't sound very Eric Irish. Schroeder. He has Irish, definitely, but the most but the, Irish. The, the, the Irishness of House of Pain. They very much was Danny Boy. Danny Boy O'Connor. Danny Boy. But do you think they latched on to Irishness because that was the only way to be? White, but also have a little bit of an edge in the yes. early nineties. Yes, 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 yes. I mean, you know, if you want like ethnic whiteness, I mean, it's well, it's it's what it's like Italian or Irish, you know. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of you know that's how it works in this country. This is a little Which bit is a more shitty broader, thing though. because it's, the thing it is, it is. It is. I, and I, and I spoke to Spike Lee about this. Like the history of Irish America and Black America is fucking terrible. We came from a country of oppressed people. The mm-hmm. penal laws, where we had mm-hmm. the opportunity to empathise with slavery, and the Irish Americans became the vicious attack dog of essentially the American Brits. It's the no and we earned our whiteness through brutality. We bought our whiteness through brutality against black people. Absolutely, yeah. In the sense that. I mean, we're, we're in this sort of weird situation where if you can imagine, if you look at things like how they built the railroads or the freeways through the swamps around Louisiana, it was more efficient to use Irish people because if you lost a black slave, you lost property. If you lost an Irish person, well, it was always another Irish person. Yeah. So it was a, you know, sort of this kind of weird, but then the flip of it being that, yeah, we absolutely didn't, you know, the, as we organized from a labor perspective, we didn't want an end to slavery. It was because very it would be a competitive. Yeah. 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 So, how do you feel about Irish Americans today who use this full. I hate that shit. I know where you're going. We, we were oppressed. We were slaves. No, that's so, and it's alt right and it's fake news and it's like and, and it ignores whiteness. It's absolutely as, as a way to climb the ladder. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, it's the most. You know that that that, that bar- book about Barbados um, is is really the most. And I'm very proud of the fact that fucking I'm Liam like, Hogan. Liam Hogan is doing the work that he's doing. Liam Hogan fucking is a, a Limerick academic work. who is doing amazing work at actually exposing the myth of the Irish slavery. Absolutely. And he's someone I, I'd love to have Liam on the podcast at some point. Yeah, you should. Yeah. I mean, I've and I've heard this. I've heard about Liam Hogan from African American activists here. Yeah, he's got a lot of respect. His praise, yeah, you know, um, because of the work that he's doing around this notion that somehow there's a parity between um, Irish American chattel slavery and the slavery that, you the, know, uh, that indentured servitude indentured servitude there were Irish people that were sent to Barbados but they could earn their freedom after 10 years oh. of work and then they became slave owners or they had kids the kids were free and the kids were free whereas you with chattel I mean? slavery no. generational no. property no. No. so there's no comparison mm. not to speak of the levels of violence and everything else that was exerted yeah. on Africans um, but um yeah, I mean, it's a, you know, like I, in those in those days, I, it was a it was a sort of weird, fucking like a novelty kind of somehow. Around so you, you were seen you know, as a novelty of this, there. Here's yeah. this kind of leprechaun character. Here's this. Well, it, it wasn't it wasn't even that sophisticated, really. Actually, you know, funny enough, um, 
there's a cereal here called Lucky Charms. Yeah. And I, I, I'd never even heard of it. But, but I they said, they, I bet you they asked you to say, uh, talk about the Lucky Charms. So I, I went, I remember going In to Britain see... In Britain it's, say, 30p. Right. But here it's Lucky Charms. Lucky Charms. I remember going to see Public Enemy at the... What was the name of the place that they played in fucking 87 in Dublin? And uh, I remember Sinead O'Connor They played was there. At, at Trinity College. They played the Trinity Ball, but they also did a gig on the Thursday night in a small spot off of Grafton Street that I'm spacing on the name of right now. Did, did uh, Scary Era support them at that point, no? I no, they supported so. House of Pain. No, it was House yeah, of Pain. House yeah, House of Pain, I remember. Um, I remember. Well, I was in the studio when they recorded Jump Around. I mean, I, I you know, I mean, Fuck I. Fuck off. Yeah, 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 yeah. What was that like? Like in those in that era, like Cypress Hill wasn't that big yet. Like we, it was fools chipping in money to buy forties that we would share. Like I mean, it was people at the edge of doing something, being really broke, and you know what I'm talking about. Like yeah, you know, course, like a yeah. bunch of lads that are in solidarity because they're trying to make something work. Any no good, one could any, imagine that it was going to turn. Any into, good art, I always think it's 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 a a shared kind of joke or something amongst good friends, and you get that energy. And then when it goes out there properly, that becomes popular. Yeah. Like the I mean, earliest shit with me and, and Mr. Chrome with the bandits, it was me and him trying to make each other laugh in a small group of friends. Yeah. And never expecting anyone else would like it. But the thing is, if it doesn't work there first, it's, it's not, not ever, you know, it's, yeah. you might as well forget it. You have to work there first. And that's the thing with... So you were in the studio with did. a bunch of friends. There were a bunch of lads. Bunch and going, of lads this is banging. We don't, who, we don't expect anything. Fellas who thought like Everlast was great. <coughs> That whole pop thing that Ice T did with him was yeah, because Everlast before uh, House House of Pain, Ice T brought him on as what was Ice T's crew that the, the syndic the rhyme syndicate, rhyme syndicate, and his earliest stuff is kind of cringy. Yeah, because Jizza got stuck into that as well. Yeah, Jizza was rhyme syndicate too. No, Jizza wasn't rhyme syndicate. Uh, Jizza was on Tommy Boy. Yes, yes, uh, yes. Who else was in rhyme syndicate? Pr- Prince Tarry B. Uh, a bunch of dudes from the Bronx that had moved out here. You know, if you listen to the first Freestyle Fellowship record, there's a song called Sunshine Men, where they talk about how all these sort of second-rate dudes from New York, and they're talking about Def Jeff, they're talking about uh, Ice-T, they're talking about, you know, like... So are they kind of trying to say that, like, okay, so New York is the home of hip-hop, so if you're shit, you go to L.A. where it's not respected? Yes. Okay, yeah. They're just dissing fools that, like, oh, you come out here, you think this is... You know, this is empty territory. There's nobody out here that can rhyme. We can do something out here. We got some cachet because we're from New York. It's kind of like the big in Japan of the time. Exactly. And then, and, and, and you know, Melly Mel, all them dudes lived out here at that time. Yeah. And, you know, you go to any hip-hop club at that time, they were the dudes that were getting shouted out on the mic. None of the local, you know, Snoop don't exist yet. You know, NWA is considered kind of like a aberration or something. You know, I mean, they're like, well, they don't really rap. I mean, they're, they're yeah. getting over on this novelty thing that they're like gangsters or something. And as well, uh, <clears throat> a huge critique that was put against the West Coast is the way they use samples was not considered creative because the West Coast would take entire loops rather than chopping it up like fucking uh, the Bomb Squad was, or not the Bomb Squad, fucking Come on, Public man. Enemies fella. Who's West it? Coast? Hank dudes, Shockley. Yeah, but there was West Coast, like, uh, you know, LL Cool, like a lot of uh, the early LL Cool J shit after Rick Rubin is done by DJ Pooh. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, it's like, legend. You know, yeah, like... That's not, you know, this is, this is a, in that era, I mean, you know, the, the roots of what become then the East, Co- East West Coast beef comes out of the kind of animosity that cats out here felt for not getting the kind of respect. You know, they used to say, like, all oh, that LA shit sounds country. 
they rap too slow. They don't really ride the pocket properly. You know, there's all this kind of tropes, which sounds country. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, well, the same shit that's been said now about mumble rap. Yeah. Same shit that was said about rap from the South. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, and this is just, you know, the kind of insecurity of New York cats realizing that they're losing their their shot you know that their shit is now starting to be practiced in other places and you know and, like, and I do see that the Tim Dog song Fuck Compton yeah I view that as a huge act of insecurity oh totally it's Tim Dog because he even raps in an old school kind of uh, Eric B and Rakim style it's kind of like trying to force this is, it's, a cons- it's a conservative song mm-hmm. we are conserving and, and preserving how hip hop is in New York and fuck any out west who are trying to do it differently this, this is, is real hip hop yeah yeah fuck that um, so what was it like first meeting Easy E how did it happen how did you first meet Easy E I think I first, so like you have to imagine I'm at, I'm at CalArts I'm trying to make this documentary project which becomes it's not about a salary because you but wrote I'm, a book called it's not because yeah. this is how if I want to tell you how I first heard about Brian Cross um, so I was in my bedroom 2005 2006 and I first started to make hip hop beats in my room and I, my older brother, who was big into music and taught me everything I know about production, he stuck his head in the door of my bedroom and said, what are you doing? And I said, well, here's what I'm doing. I'm trying to make beats that sound like a half public enemy with a bit of West Coast, but I'm rapping limerick stuff over it, but I want to make it really mad Flan O'Brien limerick shit. Yeah. And then my brother goes, that sounds great. Um, there was a limerick fellow who wrote a book about uh, the West Coast uh, fucking scene there in 1991. It was really revolutionary. I'm like, what? There was a limerick lad who wrote about rap in the fucking early 90s. Yeah. Like, what was his name? Brian Cross. Yeah, he used to hang around with Barry Warner. Yeah. So that was when I first heard about you. I was like, yeah. I need to know about this limerick fucking man who <laughs> wrote about hip-hop in 1991 in Los Angeles. I couldn't believe it. Then I went on to Amazon, couldn't find your fucking book. Yeah. And... Ten years later, I finally have a copy of the book because you just gave it to me tonight. Yeah. It's not about a salary. Yeah. Basically, so I was at CalArts and this guy, Mike Davis, is writing this book about L.A. And basically said to me, you know, there, there's a really, there is a really, there is a growing interest and lack of understanding around this city. And there's a lot of interest in my book. And, you know, you always talk to me about this rap shit. Why the fuck are you not photographing it? And I was just like, you know, the kind of thing like where it's like, you know, like I, probably because there's somebody from rap that's already doing it, and I like, you know what I mean? And what I came to realize, of course, is that like, you know, as with a lot of things in this country, they look it looks very different from far away. You know, I'd like I remember Olin from All City in Dublin coming here to go, and to go to the to go to Low End Theory, you know, which was like at that moment was like the most important thing in terms of beat-related music in the world. And you go there, and it's like a 18-and-over club. What's Low End Theory? What, Low like, I know Low End Theory like, as the album. Is the, well, there's the album, but then it, it becomes a movement where <coughs> all these cats that, like, after the death of... Was the, that Native Tongues? Oh, no, this is no, way beyond. This is okay. way beyond this. The, the, like, that's the second record by Tribe. That's, like, from 91. And basically, it was the name of a club that used to happen every, I believe, Wednesday night open to correction on that one but every Wednesday night in LA uh, and it was really about the notion that like after the death of Dilla that you know I- instrumental beat driven music so it's like basically it's where Thundercat gets gets to do his thing it's where 
it's really Flying Lotus becomes the kind of figurehead of it, but Flying yeah. Lotus come out of that scene. And, you know, it's this... No, and, and I remember Olin coming out here and being like... Uh, and going there and being like, it's just a bunch of kids in a, you know, a room with the carpet sticks to your feet. Like, Costellos. Costellos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's fucking great. <laughs> I said the carpet sticks to your feet and you say Costellos because that's exactly what I was saying. Yeah, thinking. yeah. But... Um, Costellos is a, a uh, wonderful dive bar <laughs> in Limerick. And apparently, Flan Costello, who runs Costellos... His brother has a Costellos in San Francisco, apparently. Ah, go way out of That's it. what I heard. Oh, that's classic. So, like, imagine a Costellos, basically. It's called the airliner. And every Wednesday, then kids would go there. And, they, you know, we used to say, uh, the theory is Daddy Kev, which is a, which is a, was their engineer. Like, I was a kind of a sort of scientist of sound. And then the, uh, he was the theory, but the low end was this dude called Sam. And Sam was like a dude from from England that had come out here as a basketball player huge guy like 6'9 and had got injured or whatever didn't want to play basketball was recruited out here but had some knowledge of sound systems from living in England as a young fella so he's taken it from that that, that Jamaican culture yeah He's a white guy from England, but like, do you know, in a way in England like, you know they take sound seriously yes here they don't you know weirdly enough even in the disco era uh, it, you never got to the level at the Jamaican. The Jamaicans and sound as a whole. That's a that's a that's a, that's a whole thing right there. I mean, I I I, I spent. I'm well, we can take it to fucking Cool Herc. Cool Herc brought cool that Herc. love of the sound system, Dude. took it to the Bronx, Come on. and everyone's like, Come "Why on. is Cool Herc's party the best?" And that's the bar for hip. It sounds better than everybody yeah. else's party. And he's taking that directly from Jamaican sound system culture. From Jamaica sound system culture that exists since World War Two, but yeah. that it exists actually throughout the Caribbean, all the way to Brazil. You know what I mean? Like after World War II, there's this growth in sound system culture. The Jamaicans just do it better than anybody because the Jamaicans are all like, you know, fellas that work fixing televisions and shit. So yeah. they're like, eh, I think I think we can do it better. <laughs> yeah. But it, it's all the way to Brazil. You have sound system culture in Brazil. You know what I mean? Um, where cats are like interested in uh, music from elsewhere. Colum- Barranquilla in Colombia, man. You can't imagine. I mean... They they call them pickups, but it's it's sound systems, and it's it's all West African music, and I I say like, you know you know you know m- music in the Americas is like a is like a is like a long distance telephone conversation with Africa, mm-hmm. fucking they had Skype in fucking Colombia since like yeah. since the fifties, you know they they were they were they were bootlegging Ethiopian music, mm-hmm. the first covers of Fela Kuti in the Americas is in Colombia, it's not in fucking North America, wow. it's in Colombia. Um, but sound system culture is obviously this is the kind of this, the, that's the center of it. So you can imagine a bunch of fellas over here in fucking the equivalent of Costellos every Wednesday go there and play instrumental music, and it becomes a fucking worldwide phenomenon. And then it allows people to listen to music in a different way, which allows for this resurgence of let's say jazz, where you have Kumasi yeah. Washington and Thundercat and all these dudes. And it's a fucking Costellos, dude. I mean, you know, Olin come out and he was like. I'm kind of underwhelmed and I'm like but it's it you know what it is it's what you were saying actually which is the idea that it's a uh, you know like if you're thinking about the rubber band it says like a bunch of friends yeah in a, we, we, you know let's the world of therapy in a, in a safe space yes you know where it's like you can and say whatever you like whatever no you one say, else no is going to hear it only the boys only you only the boys the boys will tell you if you said something fucking stupid that you yeah. shouldn't have said yeah but it's basically an autonomous space and an autonomous space for Africans in America, like people of African descent, 
pretty much you can I mean that's American culture man that's the fucking blues that's fucking jazz that's funk that's fucking hip hop and it's something special happens it's something special happens when a community that otherwise is denied access has an opportunity to speak amongst themselves so if you look at places like the good life or the low end theory or the park jams or you can look at any city in the fucking you know the go go scene the the, the go go is washington dc dc yeah which is a fucking bizarre yeah. type of music yeah amazing amazing it's it's phenomenal but yeah. for me as a musician sometimes it's a, sometimes it sounds out of time and yeah. I realise I don't even understand that beat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the only Go-Go song that really ever made it, one thing by Amory. Oh, man, that shit is That's an amazing savage, song. Savage, That's the... Uh, that and uh, Chuck, Brown a BDP. Chuck Brown. It's Chuck Brown, but there's a BDP, there's a classic first album <laughs> BDP song. I'm spacing on it now. That's a Go-Go sample that to me is like... Like bananas. Yeah. But, you know, th- this is regional. I mean, it's not that different than... You know, ghetto tech in Baltimore, uh, footwork in Chicago, you know, the techno thing in, 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 in Detroit. You know, these are all kind of regional scenes. Baltimore House. Baltimore House. They call it ghetto tech. But it's oh, like do that, they? Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. It's like that, like, obscene lyrics. like. And some know. of that, to me, I'm just like, I don't... I listen to a lot of fucking to the Baltimore ghetto tech and mm-hmm. I'm like, Jesus, how are you even listening to this? I don't, I don't understand that rhythm. Because you're not dancing to it. I yeah. just, like me listening to footwork, I was just like, what the fuck yeah. is this shit? Yeah. And then I was I DJed at a I DJed at this thing at the college and uh I, I, this girl came in and I hadn't seen her before <clears throat> and she said, Do you have any footwork? And I was like, I actually had this one of them Damon Auburn Africa projects had been yeah. remixed by some footwork dudes and I was like, Oh yeah, I played it and then I seen her dance and I was like, Jesus Christ. But this is the thing about sound system culture actually, is that it defies Genre, in terms of, you know, when you think of genre, you think of like particular sets, like particular palettes. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, we think of country and there's a certain set of instruments you think of, there's a certain kind of rhythm that you think of. In fact, sound system culture defies genre in the traditional sense. Like, for example, like you have in Brazil, you have this music called Swingy, uh, which is like, it's like their version. It's is like it their version of Northern Pacino de Romano? No. Have you it's, heard of that? No, what is that? All right, it's, it's me pronouncing a Brazilian word really wrong to the point that you oh, don't know what I'm talking about, but ballet funk. Ballet funk. There we go. So ballet right. funk is like, that's the post-electro, that's their ghetto tech. Yeah. But I'm talking about the stuff that goes back to like the 60s. Okay, Where they'll okay, have yeah. like the most advanced, really swingy kind of bossa nova played next to like Rock Around the Clock by, by, by uh, Lee Haley and the Comets. Yeah. Next to Check My Machine by Paul McCartney. Like, and you're like, how the fuck? That's not a genre. What, like, what kind of music is that? Like Northern Soul. Like, what kind of yeah. music is that? It's music that works specifically for that sound system and those dancers. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's very fucking interesting. Because in a weird way for me, and that's what Ghost Notes is about somehow. Ghost Notes what, is your retrospective of your career. It's yeah, it's a like book. a mid-career kind of thing. Yeah. Like, I just needed... To be honest with you, man, I'd done a bunch of work and... I'd never digitized anything. Yeah. It was just all analog. And then I had a I had a sort of stroke of luck and I had a well I had a stroke of luck and then I ended up with this painting that was worth a fucking obscene amount of money in this house, which as you can see, like a fucking seven year old could break in. Um, yeah. <laughs> and my father was like, Will you fucking get rid of that fucking painting, please? And that's a bad impersonation. My father doesn't tell him that like that at all, but 
get rid of the fucking painting because someone is going to see it and they're going to steal it. It was a Banksy painting, basically. Yeah, yeah. I've done a lot of work with Banksy over the years. And, and so I flogged it, and then the deal was I'm going to buy myself a couple of really nice photographs that I like, and then I'm going to buy myself a really good scanner. And then I was like, you know what? I need to make... And, you know, I've been doing this work for like 25 years and I need to kind of make something that makes sense as an essay the way that I, you know, like the way that I think about photographs and the way I think about music and try to put it together like that. And that, and that that's the kind of thing, those kinds of connections, you know, like why is it that Colombians figured out Fela before North Americans? Yeah. Like that, that, that stuff for me is fascinating, you know. You talking about... Uh, 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 you know, coal being brought from the north of England and shale or, or, or vinyl being brought back in the in the hull of the boat and as a, as a for possible Northern story yeah. for Northern Soul. I Whether don't know what I found that out. Not. I don't know. It's, it's it sounds lovely. It, 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 <clears throat> the, the Colombian one is that there was a German ship went by that was full of uh, Honer accordions on its way to fucking Argentina and it shipwrecked and all these accordions washed ashore because Colombians play German uh, there's no really Germans in Colombia. Some, but there's not really. And they in the 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 the, they call the Costeña, the coastal region in the north, what would be the northeast of Colombia. They play accordions like really crazy. Like the accordion to me is the first synthesizer. You know, it's like yeah. they they took the, the the church organ and they made it portable. You know, it's like yeah. They detune the shit out of them and they fucking play like at a speed that when you know there's a famous story that they. In the late uh, 60s, early 70s, uh, uh, Colombian accordion players recorded themselves and sent tapes to the Honer factory uh, to like, see if they could get Honer to send them accordions. And the dudes in Germany were like, uh, I don't know how you change the speed of the tape. <laughs> <laughs> but like... You know, the, the, clearly the shipwrecked ship from Germany is not the real story, but somehow it's an origin story of it's sorts. It's an origin story, yeah. and it's nice. And, and, yeah. and usually with these things, it's, it's the most interesting version that we want to believe. Yeah. I'm going to pause I'm, the podcast now so I can take a small piss. Is that all right, Brian? As long as I can do the, uh, what's the instrument called? As long as I can do the nose flute version of the, what's the instrument you call My it? My ocarina. Yeah. You can do the ocarina pause. <laughs> I'll tell you, we'll give Brian the opportunity now. All we've got is a... A tin of fucking No, 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 I'm going to go, I'm going to go, I'm going to go, hold on, I'm going to go, I was thinking about this yesterday coming up from the car. I have a fucking nose flute from Brazil. All right, so I'm going to go for a slash and we'll be back on with the Instead of the ocarina pause, you've got the Brazilian nose flute pause. There you go. So that was a man playing a flute with his nose. <laughs> and that is... Uh... I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. 
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. That was a Dilla song. If you, was it? Yep. Uh, Rico Suave, Bossa Nova, uh, which is, uh, yeah... That's a, that's a favourite Dilla joint. So if you heard that, that means that there was probably a little bit of an advert in there to sell you some shit you don't need. As <laughs> always, you know the story. Look, this podcast is supported by you, the listener, via the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast. If you can afford it, do. Give me the price of a pint once a month. If you can't, you can listen for free. Yard. All right, so this podcast so far has been a, a series of, of incredible tangents. Indeed. Every time I've only managed to ask one question, which was, <laughs> how did you meet Easy e and I've managed to not answer it successfully. We've like, ended up talking about fucking Costello's, <laughs> the Limerick Soviet, and uh, sound system, Colombian accordions. Colombian accordions. So, what was it like um, meeting Easy E for the first time? How obviously, you know, like I'd seen him on fucking television. I remember uh, one of those music programs on Channel Four had NWA on, and that was probably like what your man Mark Lamar. What was the word? The word. The word used it? to. They used to have a bit of West Coast stuff in the early nineties. I remember seeing the videos on YouTube. Uh, it was. They treated weird. it in a novelty way. Yeah, they did. I, I, There's an interview was with Snoop, and I felt they didn't. No, he was, was very much. It was Mark Lamar interviewing Snoop because I used a sample of that in the song "Pure Awkward." I took a sample of Snoop's interview and put it into the song "Pure Awkward." But Mark Lamar is kind of asking him. He's kind of saying to him, uh, "Oh, you advocate selling drugs and things like that," and it was very much. A yeah. privileged position, not understanding where Snoop was coming from, yeah. not understanding the resistance of Snoop's voice, not understanding the authority that Snoop is is talking against, and he was treated like a novelty. In the same yeah. way, he brought on MC Hammer, and Mark Lamar came out in the silly MC Hammer pants without realizing MC Hammer is a man with serious respect in Oakland. Big time. MC Hammer is a Big fucking time. legend. Legend. He's the real deal. Yeah. But we just saw him as parachute pants. Novelty. No, I remember uh, the first time I seen NWA on on, on TV in in. Uh at home uh, they had uh, your man that was asking the questions which I presume is the smart Lamar dude uh, they beeped him when he cursed but then they let NWA curse there you go which is like what the fuck that's is that exactly buffoonery like? and coonery that's yeah. basically it's like fucking when Johnny Rotten went on that show and they cursed and the presenter the, was just yeah. like come on do more curses yeah so it's it's novelty eyesing them it's yeah. not taking them seriously. Yeah. Look at these black lads from America doing curses. Aren't they so bold? Yeah. This will frighten your children. Yeah. And not respecting the art No, and in a kind of infant, 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 infantilizing them. Yeah. yeah. Um, so then uh, I come here. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm at, at CalArts. I'm doing my thing. I'm, I'm, uh, and then as I start to pick up a little bit of side gigs. Of course, I have this narrative now. Mike Davis, his book comes out and it's a success. And then... Uh, he says, you know, you should fucking, you should do a book about L.A. hip-hop. And I'm like, okay. And then, so I, I, I in earnest, I, I kind of started, like, he, he said, you know, I, I, there's this French journal wants me to edit an issue about L.A. I want you to do a photo essay for it. And, you know, it's like, you know the deal. It was, I end, you know, I'm in the middle of grad school. Nobody's really taking you that seriously. So here's this guy who wants me to do this photo essay. Okay, I'll fucking do it. And, um... In the first month, I met both the Freestyle Fellowship and the Watts Prophets, which 
really changed my vision of who, who are the Watts Prophets? Because they're So the Watts Prophets are like uh, you know, the easiest way to describe them would be that they're like the West Coast version of the last poets. Yeah. Um, although they're different in sort of interesting ways. And the last poets were kind of Black Panther era it, it was spoken word Spoken with, word Proto-hip-hop Sampled uh, by a lot of cats They you were know, using Gil bongos. Scott Heron Gil Scott Heron is from that too Yeah, yeah. And the Watts Prophets Were the version out here It's quite theatrical They were activists They were based out of Watts um, It's led by this cat That I'm still friends with Father Amdi An amazing figure Spoke at the funeral Of Bob Marley um, You know Just a really important figure Out of Watts and somebody who really, you know, I start to meet elders who, as opposed to being infuriated by hip-hop, are actually really feeling, like, uh, enthused and inspired by it. And in this kind of... So I, I come back to Mike, I show him, well, like, as far as I got the first month, and he was like, Jesus Christ, there's a book. And, and is Mike your tutor at this point or something? He's an, a temporary lecturer at the school, but, like, he's the cat... Well, because he have this Irish wife, and... I'm hanging out with him and he's and then I don't know anything about LA and his version of LA a kind of blue collar uh, Marxist ground up kind of version of LA is like way more interesting than anything from TV or you know and it does kind of align in some weird way with like you know that was the thing for me it was like like okay hip hop in Ireland as something that you listen to that gives you a good vibe and you get hyped up about it is one thing but then when you come here and you realize that everything you've ever seen in films or contemporary art or, or literature or the news or whatever hasn't really prepared you for what the reality of the United States, living in an urban United States is like yeah. more than hip-hop, then you're like, wait a minute, this thing that I was just thinking of as this art form actually is the most useful fucking thing. I suddenly know all these, all this slang, all this stuff about the street, you know, all these things, all this useful stuff for me uh, is coming from this music. I start to think about it and, if, you know, it becomes a much more important part. But that was from 88, you know, like when I come back, I was already like, uh, I knew what was up. Um, and so then Mike was like, well, you know, like your your perspective on this is really fucking interesting and you should... You know, let's try to do something with it. So, and so, you know, now I'm starting to get a little bit of traction. I'm starting to, and I started, you know, I started to get uh, the odd gig where they would ask me to, to, uh, you know, do stills on music videos or, you know, go out to clubs that there's, you know, there's this new club and then just do this, you know, whatever. Can you go? And so I started to like write a little bit of social stuff, taking social photos and, and do stills on music videos just basically making myself available to the community that I'm making my work in honestly it wasn't yeah. like some fucking grand scheme to have a career or something like I wasn't yeah, yeah. I wasn't even you know what I mean like that that didn't exist yet let's say yeah um and I yeah easy would easy was the only member of NWA you would see at the club yeah dre was kind of scandalized mm -hmm. yeah, dre is at the studio anyway man dre is not that social yeah cube is a nerd cube is you know, Cube's at the office. Yeah. Cube ain't at the club. Yeah. Uh, but Easy is, it's Easy, dude. Yeah. <laughs> he's at the club. Bit he's, of a mad bastard. He's a bit of a mad bastard. Very sweet guy, actually. You know, yeah. like a very generous, kind of sweet dude. Um, funny as shit. Yeah. And tiny. Yeah. What Father Amdi calls the South Central pygmies. Um, 
you know, Kendrick and all these dudes. There's a lot of dudes that are very little guys. And he's always like, yeah, it's because we got the South Central Pygmies, um, which is funny. But, uh, and AZ is just kind of this larger-than-life character. And at that time, he was, his big hot shit thing was he was basically signing the Black Eyed Peas. Okay, wow. But they weren't called the Black Eyed Peas yet. They were yeah. called the At-Band Clan, okay? And I knew them dudes because I knew Will and them, like Will and them, they were all of the projects. Mm-hmm. And you would see them. There was this place called the Hip Hop Shop and you would see them. And so, you know, I started to see them. And then, you know, like within a year, uh, there's an opportunity for an album cover to be done. He has a really specific idea. The lady at Relativity, which was the label that distributed Priority at that time, asked me, would I be interested in... Uh, would I be interested in, sh- in shooting it? And I was like, fuck yeah. So he said, drop off your portfolio. And there was another photographer. I, it was the beginning of when I was starting to work for, I don't know if I actually started to work for Rap Pages yet, but it was like close to the beginning. And um, yeah, there was this other photographer from the Bay Area that, that he was the only other photographer that had rap shit in their portfolio. And Easy knew me from the club and was like, nah, let's use him. And I was green. I mean, I didn't know what I was doing, man. I yeah. really, I, I mean, I, I had a master's in photography, but in this realm, yeah, that wasn't worth the shit, you know. Um, and so, yeah, he, I, I went and met him, and like, of course, he knew me for, like, I knew him from the club or whatever. But super nice guy. He had this idea where he was gonna, you know, Dre is dead to me, okay, and I, I'm gonna pour out this forty, and that's that's what I want on the cover. Just me pouring out this forty. Like, you know what they do? So this like is post-MWA, post-MWA post just, just broke and up. And him and Dre just are not broke. friends anymore. Him and Dre are not friends. And, and has, has Dre found death row at this point? Not yet. Okay. Um, and the, the thing at the time was, like, if you popped up, if you opened a beer, I mean, still the same. You pour out some for the, the homies that aren't here, is what they yeah. would say. And this was like... Dre him, is dead. I'm pouring out dead. the drink. No, the record was called 187 of like he murdered Dre. Okay, yeah. So I was like, ooh, you know, wow, that's that's pretty intense. But how literal was that? Not literal. Not literal. No. Yeah. Because I mean, that's what, what that's what people on our side over in Ireland and in the UK were like, all oh, right, it's literally about killing Dre. This is murder music. But as opposed to looking boy, at the metaphor. Yeah, but it, you know, even going back to Jamaica, like the these, the soundboy killing you know th- th- this is just part of the culture I mean just cause you it's say it's like that song do you ever hear the song by uh, Cody Ranks yeah oh what's the song six what's... million ways to die choose one that one yeah and, and I, I lo- what I love about that song is that he sounds like he's from Ennis or Tipperary <laughs> and it's you get that Irishness coming out into Jamaican talking yeah. about I'm gonna yeah. take a hacksaw and cut off their tongues yeah yeah and yeah. to me that's the most fucking Irish song ever yeah he sounds like he's from fucking tip <laughs> yeah. so you know I mean this is the whole thing is that it's like you know I mean I think this is the it's part of the problem somehow around the understanding of the music is there's like a level of I mean it's fucking literature dude. like there's levels yes. here yes and if you're not actually paying attention to the levels and you look at it literally you're looking at this stuff literally you're thinking like Jesus Christ what this is this yeah. guy's murdering all kinds of fucking people here but it's not it's not it's yeah. not that and so so it was that you know but it was serious too I mean they were definitely having a fallen out you know yeah um, but I don't think Easy had been 
threatened by Shug yet or what. You know, it wasn't like there yet. Like it was in the kind of like before that moment. And what happened with that shit? So when Shug Knight gets involved, I'm robbing the fags off your brain. No, I'm no, sorry. rob him, rob him. I wish this fucker would drive down and get us more fucking cigarettes. We've got Dan here from Dublin. Give us a shout out there, Dan. Sorry, bye. <laughs> and he says it in a fucking Limerick accent. <laughs> kind of Limerick accent. Right there, but uh, what was it like when, when Shug Knight got involved? Was that real shit? Did you ever yeah. meet Shug Knight? Yes. Um, was he as scary as people say he was? Yeah. I mean, he's a pretty formidable person. Okay, look. At that time, uh, is, is, you know, th- this is the moment where the whole thing starts to look like, actually, this could be a million-dollar industry. So now a whole other level of people start getting involved. Now it's not just the homies, you know what I mean? It's not like the heads that are in it for the love and all the dysfunctional fucking figures you could expect involved in any scene, especially a hip-hop scene, which is already, like, built, a technology built to help people that don't have voices. Because the way I always look at it with early gangster rap is, like, yes, they were lads from fucking Compton and they grew up hard, but ultimately, at the end of the day, they're fucking artists. And yeah. they're you know Dre was a really good fucking DJ. I mean that, yeah. that I mean he could mix records out here better than anybody. But that was his fucking thing. Who are passionate about their fucking art? Yeah, are avoiding the violence, are avoiding that shit yeah. Yeah. when they can yeah. because they care about their artists. Yeah. They care about yeah. the art. None of those dudes are out. To, I mean, minor shit. You know, like selling weed or you know yeah. stuff that you get released from prison for now. You know what I mean? Yeah. stuff that. You know, hood hood economics shit. Yeah. Not 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 like out murdering motherfucking people and shit. Like, nah, there was people doing that sort of stuff for sure, but not they them. wouldn't have ever no, have made it. No, 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 no. There was, I mean, there in the do, period. Do you, do after you look that, at it now? Do you know the way now uh, a lot of rappers? We're definitely seeing now with contemporary rappers a lot of fellas who are genuinely going down for murder. Fellas now who are full on gang heads. But the thing is, is that for them to release music just means making a track in your, in your fucking friend's house and putting it straight onto SoundCloud. And as a result of that, you're seeing people with less effort and then they're going away to jail. Whereas back then, maybe you... you to actually make the music took up way you more of your time and effort and discipline, yeah. You were talking about yeah, the streets, but I mean, you weren't living true. it as such. Yeah. But now the ones that are living it, they're releasing one song and they're straight away to jail. There, but even in that era, there Takashi were... 69, Bobby Shmurda, right. people like that, they're gone. Right, but in in the in that era, there were cats. There were like groups that were just crip or blood blood groups. Do you know, if you think yeah. of like um, Battle Cat did a record around that period called Crips and Bloods Banging on Wax. So there was groups like you know Tweety Bird Loke and all those. When the Crips and Bloods tried to get together and, and, and well, it did that did happen. You know, but but even like the likes of fucking like DJ Quick, he didn't have a C in his Quick because he he was a blood, so he wouldn't put a C in there. Yeah. MC Eight. Yeah. So, you know what I mean? There was that thing where you could not have a C or a K depending yeah. on your alliance. Yeah. That, that was the real deal, I'm guessing. Yeah. yeah that was the real deal. Because I, mean, I, 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 I assume I mean, out of all of them, DJ Quick seems to me like the most genuine gangster, like as in with connections. Oh, there's a lot of fucking. There's a lot of cats that had genuine genuine connections, but the thing to understand, look. The thing to understand about gangs or gang culture in general in this city is is gang culture here was a defensive action by fucking young African-American kids against fucking white white racist fucking groups that would come into their neighborhoods and would stop them from getting on the bus and would beat the fuck out of them. Yeah. So it was this it was this in, in in a in a in a kind of in a similar kind of way 
Bastards of the Party is a great documentary, but it yeah. talks about this, where, like, the, if you think of the Panthers as one kind of social formation, then gangs in Southern California are another. And, I mean, it's not just in California. California is the one that got the hype, and, obviously, the branding out here is pretty fucking good. Obviously, <laughs> Bloods and Crips are everywhere now. Yeah. But, you know, like, Chicago has a very strong gang tradition mm-hmm. amongst black fucking kids. Uh, 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 Detroit has a gang tradition New York has a gang tradition. But really what it is, what, what, are, what are gangs? Gangs really are fucking neighborhood groups. Yeah. But when it's a neighborhood group and the defensive and the action is defensive, it's different. But there's not, it's not just, I mean, these people didn't just produce violence. These people also produced amazing things. Uh, you know, breakdancing as we know it, at least 50% of it comes from this city. This isn't really, you know, written into the... The, 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 the tablets of hip hop uh, 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 history but you know crip walking popping locking are LA things done by neighborhood gangs and as a way DJ to express Quick, their, their DJ identity DJ Quick would say that uh, crip walking came from the Mexican hat dance that the African Americans took that from seeing uh, Mexican Americans doing a dance around a hat and they, that then developed into the blood walk and the crip walk followed the blood walk so sure that it's that simple, but uh, I, I probably would have to differ with Quick on that one. But we could get into it. But what would you uh, reckon the influence of Chicano uh, dress sense and style and culture and how that influenced African American? Very strong, very very strong. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, sagging, pressed jeans, certain kinds of cuts, certain kinds of, you know, the, in the details. Obviously, you know, um, um, car culture. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's a lot of crossover, but it's very strange. I mean, it's strange in the sense that there is, uh, especially in the jail system here, which is very, very important, there is, a, you know, there's traditional kind of animus that exists between brown and black kids. Yeah. However, there is this extraordinary conversation that exists between brown and black kids where brown kids listen to old soul oldies sung by black men, even though they would never be in a room with a with a black, you know, like you flip the record over and it's a funk record, they would never, yeah, never yeah, play yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they'll play the oldie, the soul one, the slow one, the sad one. Um, and then flip it the other way, you have, you know, you have all kinds of the way, the sag, you know, like the thing that I think people doesn't understand really about, uh, about, about West Coast hip hop is the, is no more side or left? No, it's all kind of shit is that um, is that the, the, you know, the, the, the prison system is where it all where it all starts to, you know, you look at Cube in the kind of post, what we would call out here, the post, sort of post Das Effects Cube, like where yeah, Mac yeah, 10 yeah, starts yeah. To, Well, Mac 10 just got out of jail. Yeah. And so suddenly there's a whole new kind of lexicon in Cube's music because what, he's what writing with... What do you think with, of, cause, uh, when, so when I listen to Ice Cube's early stuff, uh, not, not, no, his first album is like America's Most Wanted yeah. and uh, Kill It Will. Yeah. And I hear him working with, East Coast producers like fucking Hank Shockley. Hank Shockley. Yeah. Do you think that was a fuck you to Dre? It's like Dre, you might be the best on the West Coast, but I'm going to go to the East Coast and find Hank Shockley and Public Enemies producer and bring this because I uh, Cube's earliest solo records. I, it's East Coast beats for sure. West Coast raps, political raps. Yeah, I don't know that necessarily it was a fuck you, but I think you know the notion was if you wanted to make a serious statement that the Shockleys provided like what they call like it was the hip hop equivalent of Phil Spector it was like the wall of sound do you think because Ice Cube's so uh, Ice Cube's uh, are solo records for me 
they're very political in a way that I don't associate with early West Coast. Early West Coast is uh, smoking weed and partying, but then Cube comes out with the solo records that are, this is political, this is about the LA riots. Do you feel that maybe he was like, I want public enemy beats to make this political message sound more authentic because over West Coast, Coast beats, you don't associate political lyrics with this sound. Fuck the police is pretty political. Let's just of course, deflate yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, Let's yeah. just like yeah, yeah, yeah. turn that one on its head really quick. I think Cube has an agenda there. I think Cube uh, has, has recently converted to the nation, yeah. uh, which is much more an East Coast thing than out here. It was much yeah. stronger in the East. And I think, you know, in terms of framing a certain kind of speech, a certain kind of black utterance at that time, the Shockleys were doing, you know, with Public Enemy, were doing something that was like really fucking advanced. You know, and yeah. it really, and it was a, it was a very particular thing, you know, it was like Pooh or Dre or, you know, Slip or any of the early West Coast producers. The sound, you know, they, the Shockleys had a very, it was a very specific thing, you know, it wasn't yeah. like, um, it, was, it, was, it was contingent on the, on, the, on the sample or whatever. It was like, they, you know, they, they, they built up this kind of multi-layered kind of sound. And I think he wanted, yeah, I think he wanted that. I think he, you know, I think he had a, I mean, I think if you could say anything about Cube from that moment, it's Cube takes Cube very seriously. Yeah. And that's a little Which bit Which he should, because those first three, oh, I, I, Dude, I don't, I don't see those write. first... Yeah. The guy can write. That's the disappointing thing to me when you see Straight Outta Compton is that I'm like, dude, were you fucking phoning it in? Or like, how did you let this happen? Like, that's not... The nuance of, of Cube, like Cube as like a really sophisticated person, as somebody who's really able to kind of gather up thoughts like what what you know uh, uh, Kevin Barry would call like kind of you know finding finding rap finding fiction finding language he he didn't do a good job when it come down to it like they they were settling scores with Straight Outta Compton which I thought do, was do very Do you see a parallel between the Limerick writer Kevin Barry and Ice Cube? Sure. In the way of finding Yeah. 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 Because uh Kevin, as you know, I had him on this podcast. Kevin is, is someone I really fucking look up to as a Limerick writer. For me, Kevin gives me... Me too. He gave me the... Com- when I first started writing short stories, Kevin gave me the confidence reading him. I've never go, I, read I, I, anybody where I felt like, he's writing us. Yes. Yeah. And, and to meet him, of course, then, and realise, like, you know, well, he is one of us, obviously, but, like, just the... That's a, there's a difference be- between being of it and being able to... And that's Cube. That's Cube. You know, Cube, maybe not the most gangbanger, weed-slanging dude of his crew, but somehow he was able to voice it. Yeah. And that, this, is the, this is the tricky thing about, uh, and, and it's something I wanted to talk to you about, actually, which is about authenticity, is that Cube may not be the most authentic uh, cat in that group. Like, yeah. he's the nerd. Yeah, you know, he's the guy who I'm going to take a break from the group. Yeah, I'm going to take a break from the group for a while and go study in Arizona because my parents want me to. Yeah, I'm getting bussed to the valley. You know, I'm not going to school in Compton. I'm not going to school in South Central. I'm going to the valley, yeah. Far Valley. I'm going to the same school as House of Pain. Yeah, I'm going to Taft High School, Far Valley. But somehow I'm able to voice it, and and he could because he Q really sounds really man. fucking hardcore. And that certificate. Uh, that certificate. certificate, Jesus Christ! Come on, I mean that's he really, really, you know, uh, Robert Criscow. So he had an ear. He has an ear, and then 
I don't know. Like, because an ear is like, well, that recorder has an ear. Yeah. No, he has a brain attached to an ear that's okay, able to yeah, take. Yeah, 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 you know, yeah. that's Kevin. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, there's a thousand conversations at the supermax. He just happens to fucking Kevin find, is the able wood. To find the absolute fucking <laughs> yeah, best like, one. The one that you're like, oh shit, that's you supermax. read f- five lines of Kevin Barry yeah. and you fucking prick. Yeah. How did you get that? Yeah. No, yeah. It's ridiculous. I mean, it's fucking amazing, you know. So, and Cube, you know, that, I mean, that's that's Cube, you know. I mean that. That and it doesn't. That thing, it you know, a lot of times it doesn't come with a. It's not so easy in the end, you know. It comes with a big responsibility sometimes. I feel like. Yeah. And he, you know, he was that. Like he was the most serious cat out here for a long minute. You know, people really regarded him. And I think then he backed himself out of it. You know, like he was like, "Fuck, shit, I could just go do films, movies." You know. Because, I mean, uh, no disrespect to Ice Cube, but, I mean, I, I like, I, I, post 1993, I'm not listening to a lot of... When it's like, uh, if you can do it, put your back into it. Right. I'm not really listening to that, but... No. Kill It Will, America's Most Wanted, and Death, Death Certificate. Certificate. The, the holy trinity of those three albums. Fucking hell. That's rap at its peak. Yeah. Do you know? And for me, like, I fucking love Public Enemy. I love Public Enemy. But Cube... Did the public enemy political shit and it sounded scary and dangerous in a way that with public enemy like again it's no disrespect to them with Cube sounded like I'm actually going to do this stuff he's younger and he's a different kind of storyteller than Chuck man I yeah. mean Chuck is like the village call- like he Chuck is somewhere between <laughs> the last poets and Cube do you know what I mean? Generationally, like, I mean, yeah. literally he is, but also in terms of the concept of what, he, what he's trying Chuck to Chuck D do. was older. Chuck D yeah. was like 28 yeah. when, when they started yeah. with Public Enemy. Cube's like 20. Yeah. You know, Cube's coming out like blah, 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 blah. Yeah. You know, and it's, you know, I mean, I, but I remember meeting him and, you know, like, I, I mean, it was intimidating, dude. Like, Cube was, when I met him in that era, you know, like, um, you know, F. Gary Gray is doing the, is doing all the videos and you know, you know, you meet Cube, and Cube is you know super. The Nation, all the dudes from the Nation are with him, and it was intimidating. You know, I was like, "Whoa, it's fucking Cube." But then after it's not about a salary came out, uh, I met him, and he said, "Yeah, man, you know, I really like the book. I, I really feel like you, you 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 told a lot of shit the way it was supposed to be told." And I was yeah. like, "Wow, that's I'll take that. That's fucking that's cool. fucking praise from yeah, Caesar. That's cool. Yeah, yeah, that's cool." Um. What, when you, what was it like me first meeting Tupac for the first time? I really, I would say, I was in the room with Tupac probably two or three times. The only time I really, really met him, I, I was the stills photographer on um, Dear Mama. Yeah. And, it, you know, I had this kind of, I mean, I have a kind of ambiguous relationship to Tupac in some respects, in the sense that, like, whenever he was out here, like, he was one of those dudes that was like, nobody, like, okay, we knew, you know, like, you knew that dudes were, like, doing crazy shit, okay? Yeah. But, like, hip-hop in those days, like, you couldn't wear a baseball cap to the club, you know, because it was gang-related. You couldn't wear a bandana. You couldn't wear, a lot of clubs, a lot of times, you couldn't even wear sneakers, dude. Do you I know, because like, uh, like, I'm thinking WC and the Mad Circle dress code. Yeah. That's not. Exactly. No, that's, the dude, that's it. Like, you, yeah. you know. And Which is an amazing song You should listen to it It was Coolio <laughs> yep. I know we know Coolio From Gangster's Paradise But yep. Coolio was an incredible Fucking rapper He was yep. in a band called WC in the Mad Circle yep. 
They have a couple of albums, fucking unbelievable. DJ Aladdin was the DJ. DJ fucking Aladdin. Yeah. He was also the DJ for uh, Ice T's best shit. Uh, DJ oh, Aladdin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Home yeah, Invasion. Home Invasion. Yeah. And he was, in, he was in a group with Low Profile with WC before that. But anyways, you know, Tupac was the type of dude that would show up to the fucking... I remember going to see uh, Grand Puba playing in Pasadena. Yeah. Come on, man. It's Grand Puba, dude. It's like the five percenters, the yeah. New York, the conscious stuff. Like... Puba, you know, the dude that brought mm-hmm. you Tommy Hilfiger. Why are you there rocking a fucking bandana, like, cripped out? Like, nobody can even wear a baseball cap in the damn club. You got, And then you got to show up, like, extra. Like, he was but he that, was allowed to do it because he was Tupac. He was a movie star. Yeah. He was a movie star. And he was a movie star. I mean, he was Do you really feel that Tupac maybe appropriated the gang culture of the streets that he wasn't associated with? I think, you know... He did, uh, Tupac no, did not grow up in gangs. No. No, he grew up in the projects in Marin, and then I guess he grew up in New Jersey. He was a Panther baby, but he he wasn't. He didn't come out of that kind of culture. No, not really. You know what I mean? I think you know it's one of those things where this is a cat that deeply understood that uh, in order for him to make you know for his life to have any meaning, he needed to make sense for his people. Like he felt, he like he that that was in his body. Like he 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 understood that, but that. In that moment, uh, you know the 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 the, the way. Like, it, it, you know, it was. It's, it's just. It just was one of those things. Like where it's like, you you should. If you have to wear it on your sleeve, yeah, it's probably not real. And then like, why are you at the Grand Puba concert wearing? Yeah, you know. And then you, the next minute, I turn around and your shirt's off entirely. Like no, when nobody was doing. You know what I mean? Like there was. But is it like <laughs> to take it back to Limerick? If. You get hassle in Limerick. The lad who's doing the most talking is the one who probably isn't who you shouldn't be looking out for. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And Tupac had a had a vibe of that about him. He was just he was extra, you know, like it was this kind of lippy and he was kind of loud and he was kind of, you know. But look, uh, Tupac's also a Gemini, his birthday is very close to mine, and Tupac wore you know you know the Her- you know Werner Herzog? I do a course no Werner Herzog. So Werner Herzog has this <laughs> a man who made a documentary about eating his own shoe. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? I fucking know about um, a Herzog. Dieter loves to fly, but he Herzog has this idea of like the performed self. Yeah. You know, n- like not some stable notion of who you are. That's like this mustard seed, your soul inside you. But that's something that you're creating and recreating, like memory or anything else. As, you know, all the time. And, a and, living sculpture. Yes. And Tupac is that. Like so, the, who so are the two, two boys? Who are the fucking two English lads? Gilbert and George. Gilbert and George, the living sculpture. Ah, here now. <laughs> Would you see a Gilbert and George living sculpture type of thing with Tupac taking it back to Herzog? Uh, it, I wouldn't see it in Gilbert and George per se, but I think there are plenty exa- of examples of folks that, you know, had complex lives where they veered from being... Look, the real, the, the real thing to understand with Cube is this. Look, it's the Eric Hobsbawm thing, man. Banditry. Yeah. Tupac is a bandit. Yeah. But it's a bandit that could be a tender uh, dear mama. It could be a fucking prick at the club. Yeah. It could be the ladies' man and dating fucking Quincy Jones's daughter. Yeah. And could show up in the fucking projects and, make, and everyone would fucking love him. You know, I mean, and that's he, not... He, you know, that's the thing is, well, Tupac brought... Uh, if you think of songs like Dear Mama... Yeah. 
he brought a type of sensitivity that was only permissible in R and B. I'm going to go one. I'm going to go one step further. I'm going to. You're going to go LL Cool J. I need no, love. No, no, no. Which was written no. by Christy Moore's fucking brother. I know. Did you um, know this? LL Cool J had a song called "I Need Love" from the late '80s, and it was written by Christy Moore's brother, Luca Bloom. Luca Bloom. No one knows that. Um, but did Luca Bloom do a cover of it, or he actually wrote it? Oh shit! No, no. I'm sorry. You're dead right. Yeah. LL Cool J wrote I Need Love, Love and Luca L- Bloom L- did a cover yeah. of I Need Love. Which was Love. a hit as well. It was a huge hit, yeah. But shout out L- to Christy cool Moore. J, indeed. Uh, LL Cool J have this thing where he was able to talk about uh, like that he needed love or round the way girl. Mm-hmm. Um, but LL Cool J was never, uh, he was bad. He wasn't, I'm a killer. He wasn't bad I'm in the Michael warrior, Jackson way. Bad in the Michael Jackson way. He wasn't like I'm out here fucking repping our people, and we're going. I'm going to lead the fucking revolution. And he is, was very honest about that. Yeah. LL Cool J was uh, Will Smith before Will. He's Smith. like Will Smith. It's yeah. a very that's the that's. that's and he wore it on his sleeve. Yeah. And, and you have to respect it. Yeah. So LL Cool J wasn't like I'm a gangster. It's like no, no, no. This uh, is my this is my thing. No. Um, whereas Pac, actually, there's a vulnerability in Pac. Yeah. That's the thing. Weirdly enough, there's a vulnerability in Biggie. I personally, there's a to, big vulnerability yeah. in Biggie. I, I, because I, it's, for me, it's, it's, I prefer it's, Biggie to Tupac. I, if, you know, if you're asking too. me to bust out what record am I busting out, I'm busting out a Biggie record. Me too. Yeah. You know, Ready to Die to me, it's like, dude, like, wow, that yeah. shit really, you know. Which, um, I mean, now you're allowed to say it. I mean, growing up, you were, you, you had to be Biggie or Tupac. And not for me, but you know what I mean? Well, in Limerick, in Limerick, oh, in Limerick, sorry, in Limerick yeah, sorry, fucking, sorry. <laughs> I had to be Tupac. In public and Biggie in private, you couldn't say in Limerick. Tupac just attained a strange folk status in Limerick. Tupac is a whole other thing. Tupac there was murals became, of fucking murals of Tupac in Limerick. Like Tupac is a deity. Yeah. In the way there's murals of fucking Che and Kilki. Yeah. Well, now Che Guevara's got the Kilki connection. He does. He's he's the Lynches, the Lynches the of Lynches. Galway. Yeah. But the thing is, is that on some fundamental level. He stops being, he transcends from being, a, 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 you know, a political leader, a revolutionary, and he becomes a deity. Like, it's become like, you know, no matter what part of the world you go to, you're going to find some fucker selling a bootleg t-shirt that has fucking Che on it. Yeah. I don't give a fuck where you go. You can go fucking Which you anywhere. can take right back in Jim Fitzpatrick. Of course. To this day, Jim Fitzpatrick. Jim Fitzpatrick the reason that there's Che Guevara posters everywhere is Jim Fitzpatrick, an Irishman, made the iconic image yeah. of Shea yeah. and he decided I'm not putting a copyright on this. Yeah. This is an open source image and as a result now you can buy it anywhere. Yeah. And to you know in the way that people like Lampiao in Brazil or Pancho Villa in 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 Mexico or you know these bandit figures that are like people that don't aspire to power. Like I don't want to be the president. I'm not interested in being the president or the king. But I am interested in being this kind of dissident figure that's a glit, like, you know, that's like a fucking, a rip in the fucking time-space continuum and a fucking thorn in the side of anybody who's asserting privilege, asserting fucking power, asserting fucking repressing people. I'm this kind of dissident, unpredictable figure. And, and Pac is A that. trickster. A trickster. Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, Big never, dude, he died when he was 26. I know. It's, I mean, you know, like, this is... That's the freakiest I'll shit. I'll tell you, you something I, I'm looking like, at photographs of either of them and going, they were fucking 22, 23. It's, it's, it's fucked. Do you know? Um, like, I mean, even Kurt Cobain as well. Like, I mean, Jedward are older than Kurt Cobain. Yeah. 
Do you know what I mean? It's nuts. What do you think of... Uh, I heard something recently. Kurt Cobain is more relevant to the rappers of today than Tupac. If you listen to... Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I mean, uh, I, I understand tri- tri- the... Trippy Red, XSXTentacion, yeah. uh, Lil Peep. You hear Kurt Cobain in there in, and they almost reject Tupac. Possibly. I mean, you know, I mean, you can... Kurt Cobain... How, you know, I mean, there's there's a DJ Quick song that's a total fucking. There's a Tony 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 song, Raphael Sadiq song that's a total Kurt Cobain. Um, Kurt Cobain did something very interesting, which is Kurt Cobain. He's, he's to, very much embraced by the rap community. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think figures like Kurt Cobain work for the kind of rap that's being produced now. You know very I mean? much like, so. Yeah. In terms of a kind of. Uh, What's the influence of fucking drugs, man? I mean, for starters. Drugs, but as well, um, <laughs> something like, so the, the one, there's many critiques I have of the hip-hop I had grown up, right? The one thing that always, the misogyny. I always had to look over the misogyny yeah. and ignore it in order to enjoy Complicated, the Complicated, difficult, yes. As I get older, it's like, like I'm listening to fucking like, bitches ain't shit but hoes and tricks. And as an adult now, I'm going, ah, Jesus, lads. Can yeah. I, I'm just listening to the beat. Yeah. And I'm not with the lyrics. But something happened. I think the turning point for me was uh, Tyler, the Creator. Tyler, the Creator, Odd Future. It introduced uh, a vulnerability. Tyler, the Creator, circa 2011, introduced the capacity within rap music to speak about things like depression, anxiety, mental health. And you can trace from Tyler, the Creator now to the acceptance of Kurt Cobain grunge and emo music that's now very prevalent in today's rap if you look at Trippy Red or Little Peep or people like that yeah I mean there's others involved I mean I think Dela to me for example of as course. a group that yeah. like you know always had this you know the first song about uh, a child abuse the first hip hop song about child you know you know Millie pulled a pistol on Santa you know you think back to those songs Ice-T has a song called The House there's a house down the street where the kids are it's only a minute it's on uh, original gangster okay. and it's just a little quick one minute song and he's going there's a house down the streets where the kids are and every day they seem to have a new scar and it's him oh, wow. listening to domestic abuse next door and he goes why won't do why won't anybody do something call a cop then there's a pause of two bars the other night I heard gunshots oh wow and that's 1991 and it's Ice-T just saying kids next door their parents are doing nothing they're kicking the fuck out of them I'm an adult why don't I do something I ring the police everyone in the house is shot I heard that when I was 11 and started crying yeah I mean I don't know like it's a a thing where like the way I always explain it is that there's a uh, there's like a kind of internal pendulum uh, in the in the music and on one side it's like uh it's like body, what we call body music, and on yeah. the other side, there's like Cerebral. the heady, the heady side. And what's interesting about what's happening in the music now is that they're well, I mean, like social. I mean, look, you know, it, it, the, the era we're talking about is, you know, I mean, Walkmans. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I was like, whoa, fucking portable, fucking headphones. What? What are we now? What are we dealing with? You know what I mean? It's like speakerphones. Yeah, and like. In a in a in a entire like where your entire world comes through the Walkman, you know what I mean? Like the yeah. entire everything, everything, and 
you know, there is a whole different set of social uh, social issues, even the way we talk about certain kinds of social issues, good and bad. Um, different kinds of relationships to, to, to you know, the, the kinds of drugs, the kinds of way people deal with... The, what the, do you the, think about the inf uh, when hip-hop started taking ecstasy around 2012? Well... Like Chief uh, Keef out of Chicago starts yeah. talking about Molly water, which yeah. is ecstasy crumbled into a fucking bottle of water. water yeah. Um, you know, like when I first came to the States in 88, 90, uh, it was still legal here. Like fucking MDMA was something you could, like it was legal in Texas. There was, I remember in Berkeley, there were still, there was a lab that was doing experiments with it. You could get it, like it wasn't illegal. You could get it. But were Yorks big in the 90s? Yolks was a different thing. It was rave culture, and there was no bridge. Here's between one thing I'd I'd love to fucking ask you about now, and I know very little about it, um, and it's taken it away from hip hop. But the early '90s East LA Latino scene with backyard parties, yeah. and listening to kind of house music and doing yolks, and it was the Latino community. Have you any experience of that in the yeah. early '90s? Yeah, of what course. What was that I mean, about? There's a whole kind of resurgence and rehistoricization of that scene now around the and it was basically kids would like bunk off from school yeah go to a house party in East LA yeah start at 11 o'clock in the day and listen yeah. to fucking rave yeah and do yokes that's their their kind of proto house or electro this is music called freestyle let the music play by Shannon for example yeah. would be like a classic um, but then it very quickly you know the summer of love flips it into like become like a like an acid like house thing it's huge i mean and it was a huge scene um, but it was very latino it was almost entirely latino yeah uh there was there were certain clubs you know on the east side of hollywood that that's all they would play i actually photographed a lot of those dudes because i used to do a lot of work for this magazine called herb and herb was you know this kind of brainchild of this young african-american cat called uh, raymond roker that um that was a place for all those, uh, for all that stuff to exist together. So you know, you'd, in the in the pages of that magazine, you'd have. Uh, I'm gonna fucking. Is that the last fucking smoke? The, there's a lot of fags over there, screen. I will not one that I can roll. Ben's a spliff got with. fags. I'm gonna roll a spliff with this stuff. Um, um, but it, you know, in the pages of Herb, those things live together. In the streets, not so much. Um, but it, it was a, it, it, there's an Instagram account called Vet, Veteranas and Rukas. I follow that, yeah. Yeah. And my friend designed, they, they just did a book of flyers and photographs and memorabilia from that period. And my friend designed it. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's you know, I remember it very well. It's fucking mad. But LA is, you know, now and, it's and challenging. Because it's, it's some of the stuff, it's, it goes back to the 70s. It's like the following the Pachucos yeah. and how that grows into the Cholo scene. Yeah. And just this whole East LA Latino thing that was separate it's to hip hop, roll, but at the man. same like, time, Pachucos is rock and roll. Like that's but what are what are Pachucos? And 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 is that does the Zoot Suit riots? Yeah. So, um, damn. Okay. <laughs> I know I'm taking it back. Uh, no, now, no, but it's cool. I mean, I I this is all LA shit. I'm happy to talk about it. I mean, the basically you have you know this was Mexico. Yeah. Up until the 1850s. It was, of course, yeah. This was Mexico. LA is fucking, yeah, Mexico. Mexico, yeah. And you know about the Brigada San Patricios, right? Were, they, were the Irish lads involved with that? Yes. Is that where the term gringos comes from? No. Do you know no. what I heard about the term gringo? Yeah. 
So a lot of a lot of Irish lads come over to fight with the Mexicans against the Americans. Right. And they used to sing a song, which is an Irish song called Green Grows the Grass at Home. Yeah, I know. And the Mexicans started to refer to the it Irish fighters grows. as Gringos. Green Grows the Grass at Home. Gringos. That's a fucking new one. I never heard that. So, okay. 1850s, Alamo, all that shit. You have the Mexican-American Wars. The expansion of the United States westward, in this case, into the southwest, which is, at that moment, Mexico. So they begin to fight the Mexican army. A load of fucking Irish fellas from, you know, the economic draft end up in the fucking army from Philly and fucking Boston and Chicago, end up in the, in the American army and go down to fight against these bad Mexicans and realize, well, hold on a minute now. This is a fucking smaller country that's Catholic. Uh, Jesus, I don't think we're on the right side here, lads. Yeah. Switch fucking sides, lose, and all get executed en masse. And every year on St. Patrick's Day in Mexico City, they put a wreath on this fucking big monument. To the, they were called the San Patricios, the St. Patrick's, um, for all these Irish fellas that did it. I mean, really, one of the fucking, you know, one of the most wonderful kind of gestures of solidarity that has yeah, existed on this continent. Phenomenal. Fair play to the boys. Fair play to the lads. Like, fucking... Yeah. Jesus, the corona tastes better than the Budweiser lads. I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, they all lost their lives in all seriousness. Roy Cooter made a f- record with the Chieftains about it, actually. Yeah. There's never been a film about it. Which I didn't know that. Movie, yeah. Roy, I love that. Roy Cooter made a, made a record with yeah. the Chieftains about yeah. it. Yeah, so... Um, there was no rapping but anyways um, fucking you know in, as part of that uh, war and as part of that expansion of the United States uh, basically the southwest becomes part of the US and then you know a massive uh, a Mexican population suddenly becomes nationalized okay they yeah. become Americans and there's all kinds of treaties that were made in that period where they were spo- they, those people were supposed to be protected and it was supposed to be all good for them and they were supposed to have And are these people in, indigenous Californians? Some of them are indigenous Californians. I mean, this is a complicated issue for Chicanos. Some of them are, are obviously Mexican, which is, you know, some mestizo Spanish indigenous mix. Um, and some of them are just, you know, folks from, from, you know, like Mexicans. Very interesting, very progressive, very radical. They also believe that they're like Tirnanog or like fucking mythical places. This place called Aslan and Aslan is here in California. Yeah. And so... Is that know, like they're Israel? Uh, sort of, or yeah, like it, there's a kind of Israel, Tirnanog, you know, it's this kind of utopian. A cho- a chosen people, who, a are chosen people who are supposed to find their way to this place. Yeah. Of, you know, and, um, you know, for the most part, uh, people that, you know, aren't part of the American project writ large for, for racial reasons, for class reasons for cultural reasons that they're not you know they're, they're not you know the, the white American thing is a very specific thing it's not for everybody you know what I'm saying yeah like, yeah yeah and um, they're these are deeply cultural folks man I mean you know like if you want to understand how to live in this part of the world don't look at what the white people are doing or the black people are doing look what the Mexicans are doing man. yeah 
you know, they, they figured out a way to eat the cactus. They figured out a way to make stuff out of corn, like stuff that really grows here, not stuff that like is imported or is like yeah. some kind of, you know. And as part of that is this very rich, um, very sophisticated uh, iconography, uh, 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 sort of sort of set, sets of cultural histories and trajectories and tropes, of which you know a lot of it is what we think of as as you know uh, mainstream popular culture and in, in, in the, you know a lot of the flavor that people think about when they think of here, whether they think of lowriders or ponchos or fucking amazing fucking blankets or pottery or or or, or, or whatever it is, rock and roll is 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 part of this discourse or discussion that the exists. The mad between. thing is, Brian, so I was yesterday I was doing my little Blade Runner tour. Right. And I was up by the Bradbury building and I was mm-hmm. in Grand Central Market mm-hmm. which features in Blade Runner. And like I said, yep. the thing for Blade Runner for me is it's Los Angeles, November twenty nineteen. And in nineteen eighty two when they made Blade Runner Ridley Scott and Sid Mead predicted that Los Angeles twenty nineteen would be overcome by Asian culture, Chinese and Korean. And when I was in Grand Central Market, I was like, no, it's South American, it's Salvadorian, it's Mexican. That's what they yeah. got wrong. Well, I mean, there's, you could, there, I mean, I could take it to I, Monterey I see, Park right now and we could, <laughs> you, you'd feel like, oh shit, they are, the Koreans and the Chinese are actually here. Um, Los Angeles is a fucking extraordinary, spread out, uh, very multicultural in a fairly interesting way, in, in, in a way that's not like London or New York or Paris, um, where people actually get to have, you know, little Mexicos, little Chinas, little Koreas, little yeah. Tokyos, little whatever. Little Armenia. Little Armenia. Which is little where we are Thailand, right now. Little, Filipi- little Armenia, little, little Filipino, little Filipino, historic Filipino town. And I went past the fucking, the first Sikh temple in the, uh, in the United States, just yeah. there to get in here, like... And you know um, that's the you know that's the part of this mad megalopolis that people really generally, to be honest, you know, like you, you ask people, people say come to LA, and then they complain usually of some bad stereotype about how spread out it is, or you know the the, the difficulty of it is. Like I'm going off to San Francisco next week, and I can't fucking wait because I can just walk around the place. <laughs> I can't walk around LA. Well, if you're staying at the fucking standard, it's you know what, you know what, you know what LA is like. You know the Dock Road in Limerick. Yeah, LA is the Dock Road on a horn. It's just one big long Dock Road. Do you know what the Dock Road used to be? What? That used to be the red light district. Oh, it fucking did, indeed. Yeah, <laughs> it did. And there's still one place beside Dolan's warehouse called Marines, and apparently that's still the it's same. It's still vibe. there, but there's no one in there. Like, I mean, that that's the old school. That was the. That was the brothel of Limerick. It's still open. I don't know if there's anyone practicing in there as a brothel. Yeah. But like, there was a great. Are you familiar with the Limerick artist Jack Donovan? I do. I am, of course. Yeah. yeah. Jack Donovan, a fucking legend, and yeah, he he savage. used to go down around the dock road, and he used to paint what he would see in the brothels of Limerick, which again, it's because it was just beside the docks, and you'd have yeah, a lot of, of soldiers coming. Or navy, of course. Do you know about Jack Monday? Uh, no, tell me. Jack Monday is... Have you ever heard our song, Black Man? Yes. Just so we have a song called Black Man. I shot in the docks. Black, shot in the docks for one <laughs> very specific reason. Because there's a story in Limerick. In 1918... No, sorry, about 1920. Would have been the height of the War of Independence. A ship came into the docks in Limerick. And it was a ship full of African carpenters. And this ship 
do- uh, moored there and these African carpenters stayed in Limerick for the week. And while they were there, they noticed this tension that's happening in the country. They noticed the war of independence. They yeah. were looking at the black and tans, kicking the shit out of people in Limerick. And one fella on the boat who was an African carpenter, his name was something Jacamunde or some African name, but the Limerick people heard it as Jack Monday. He got it into his head. He's like, look at what's happening to the fucking Irish people. At that time, it was illegal to fly any... Uh, if you were coming out of Limerick Docks, which in 1920 was British yeah. property, was Britain, yeah. you had to fly a Union Jack. So Jacamunde, who was docking out, getting ready to go back to Africa with these carpenters, said, fuck this, I'm flying a tricolour. So he raised the tricolour up on this ship in Limerick in 1920. Black and Tans went onto the ship, started baiting the shit out of the African carpenters. And this fella, Jack Monday, stabbed the Black and Tan, ended up in Limerick prison and then joined the Ra. And this is the legend in Limerick that this fella, Jack Monday, who was an African carpenter, was imprisoned in Limerick prison and then joined the IRA. And he was the black man in the IRA in Limerick, Jack Monday. There's a coffee shop called Jack Monday's in Limerick now. And that's where... I want a black man in my gang comes from and that's why we shot it on Limerick Docks because we shot that with Channel 4 and they were like look we want to shoot this in London it'll be cheaper and I'm like no we're shooting this in Limerick fucking Docks because of Jack Monday and there's a very specific subtext to this and I don't give a fuck who fucking knows it or not but this is why we're doing it it's these acts of solidarity dude it's an act of solidarity yeah Yeah. I mean that's that's a fucking beautiful story man when, when did you first work with Outkast? And when did you start going, to, like, Outkast being... Like, okay, I'm very familiar with Southern hip-hop, but the first time I really heard Southern hip-hop for me is when it trickled over from Outkast. I didn't know about Scarface, I didn't know about UKG, nothing like that. You didn't know about Ghetto Boys? You know, no, no. Really? It, it didn't make it as far as Golden Discs. Because Ghetto in Boys, Limerick. in some fucking weird way, was like... Uh, my mind's playing tricks on me. Oh, it was like fuck. such a... But Southern hip hop at that point There's a song about fucking mental illness There you go Scarface is a fucking legend I'll tell you a fucking crazy story about Scarface When I first started working for Rap Ages 1994, working for Rap Ages First cover I shoot for them is a Dude called Magic Mike DJ from Orlando mm-hmm. Selling records out of the trunk Making a fucking grip of money Big deal, okay Didn't do a great job Kind of didn't I I don't know I, I, It was whatever, whatever reason I, I you know, in those days, I, I mean, you know, I, I never trained as a commercial photographer. I didn't never assisted anybody. So I, I was kind of making it up as I went along. So there were certain things that were working, certain things that weren't. Second job I got for him was go shoot Scarface. Go to uh, Houston. But this is the days, like, dude, there's no publicist. There's nobody to meet us at the airport. There's no... And Southern Rap was spat upon in the oh, early 90s. Southern I mean, Rap was seen as crazy. fuck off. Crazy. We've already accepted that the West Coast are going to do it. There's no fucking way the South are going South. to do it. Come on. So I go there. He's after moving into a house, uh, like, on the, one of these, like, private lake. And they have a house. And you have to buy a house. But he buy the house, and he did, there's no fucking furniture. There's a pool table. There's a bed in his, uh, where, his room. Yeah. And then there's a bunch of relatives. But there's no other furniture. There's couches, but there's no other furniture. And we're supposed to stay there for the weekend. And there's a guy who's like second only to Louis Farrakhan uh, is staying there as well to meet with Brad Scarface. Anyway, long story short, did the photos. We got shot at one night, I remember, at the club. Uh, we, we went to this club and these dudes chased us and we got... What's that like fired. getting shot at? 
Because you were really definitely surreal, not getting shot it's, at it's, in Limerick in the 80s. You were not no, getting... no, you weren't. I mean, in Limerick in the 80s, you were liable to catch a fucking dig or a hatchet or a head. But the but guns hadn't come to Limerick yet. The guns weren't there no. yet, no. Um, it's fucking surreal, because generally uh, getting shot at is something that happens in the past tense. You're yeah, like, yeah, when yeah, it happens, yeah. you're like, what was that? Was that a fucking gun? And then, and then everyone is like, Jesus, did you say your man with the gun? And, you know, so like that. It's so done. It's, it's done over. already. It's already over. Um, the funny thing anyway was, we, we, I remember meeting uh, uh, Bushwick and the far side actually played in Houston. They all came over. Big Boy was with them. And Big Boy, not Big Boy from Outcast, but Big Boy, who was the road manager of, of the far side, who's now like a huge radio personality here. And um, anyway, whatever. Did the photos, came out good, went back to LA, blah, blah, blah. Fast forward now, fucking 2012, so like 20 fucking years, like, I don't know, what's that, like 28 years, I don't know how many years later it is, 20-something years later, fucking, I'm at a concert, Quantic is opening for De La Soul at this concert on the west side of L.A., and my wife is, is singing with Quantic, and uh, and, I, and I'm friends with Paz from De La. For, we're, we're, and so after the show, I go back looking for, uh, for Paz, and I seen him, and we were ch- chatting and whatever, and it was normal shit. And whatever way out of the corner of my eye, I see, oh Jesus, fucking Scarface! Here comes Scarface, and I'm I'm thinking like. Do you know that kind of situation where it's like, I'm going to get five seconds with this guy? Yeah. How do I tell him, I was in your house in 1994, and this whole, you know, this whole thing, how am I going to make him remember that? Like, it's not, yeah. you know, that's going to be impossible. He's seen a lot of people. Dude, come on, he's fucking Scarface. Okay, so, he's, as he's walking towards me, anyway, I'm, I'm, and I'm having a kind of fucking social anxiety of like, how do you, you know, fuck. And about 15 feet away, he starts pointing at me. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? And he's like, you were at my fucking house. You remember? And he remembered the dude I was with. And I didn't even remember the name of the dude that I was with. And he fucking, and, and I was like, wow, this fucking guy. And so then I said to Pass, I was like, dude, fucking Scarf. I was at Scarface's house in 1994. It's now 2012. And he fucking remembered me. How the fuck? And he was like, oh, yeah, that's totally normal. <laughs> I was like, that's how he is. That's what he said. That's how he is. Yeah. I was just like, that's only ever happened to me. It's two other times that's ever happened to me. Carrie Mae Weems, great African American photographer, remembered me from meeting me at this fucking 1990, 2015. I meet her and she was like, weren't you at that thing with Deborah Willis at NYU? And I was like, whoa. Fuck. Yeah. Yeah, I was. And then uh, Gip from the Goody Mob. Um, his wife is Joy, great singer, out of that whole outcast scene. Yeah. And she saw me in a bar in downtown L.A., and I'd met her once in Atlanta, like, 20 years before, and she remembered me. But it's like, that's fucking, that's a superpower. Like, I don't, yeah. you know what I mean? That's like a part of your brain that the regular, all the rest of us don't really have access yeah. to or whatever. And so, the story with outcast is this. Basically, in those, in that era of rap ages, I was asked to go photograph outcast. Now, the simple version of this story is that I went and photographed him and... This it must be like 92, 93. Yeah. After Southern Playlistic... Uh, no, Southern Playlistic just come out. Yeah. I went to Westside, met him at an office and photographed him. But now I'm going to do a little fucking... 
take a little blind boy liberty here with this story and jump into a whole other fucking version of it. Ten years later, I'm downstairs here, and it's two o'clock in the morning. I'm in there fucking printing in the dark room for some fucking deadline on some job, whatever. And I'm listening to the, I'm listening to the radio. And it's one of those public radio kind of fun drives, you know, like where they're yeah. like raising money, you know, send money, whatever, whatever. We're going to give you this gift. And the gift was that there was a recording of a reading of the Terence McKenna book called True Hallucinations, which is really a book about the beginning of the 60s where like these two sort of ethnobotanists, Timothy Leary and Terence McKenna, go to the Amazon and discover psychedelic drugs. Yeah. Quote, unquote. Like, Columbus discovered America. Um, and the reading, the reading of the book is happening over some psychedelic uh, band. Yeah. The thing that trips me the fuck out is that if you read True Hallucinations, when, when McKenna and Leary go there in the early 60s, they meet this fucking... I'm so glad I get to tell you this story. They, they meet this guy... They're looking for a guide to take him into the Amazon. And they meet this guy from Barbados. And he's like 80 years old. And it turns out, whose fucking guide is he? He was Casement's guide. Roger fucking Casement's guide? Yeah. Fuck off. Yeah. What? Yeah. So, at the, so Casement, let's just be fucking clear here, is the first sort of... You know, he's the father of human rights. Uh, he's Roger the father Casement's of human the father rights. Of I mean, he's the rights. first sort of colonial subject to speak back to, go, like, who's a government, a member of government to speak back and say no. The Ro- whole Roger colonial Casement, p- if you don't know, he was in the 1916 <laughs> Rising. He was. Uh, he's the, the the weirdo of the group. He didn't he was, get. He didn't end up in. He ended up getting caught in Banastrand. He was Sir Roger Casement. He was a knight yeah. of the British Order. He called the fucking Brits out for it. He was in the 1916 Rising. He tried to organize guns. They hung him. They called him. They released his diaries to, to let people know that he was gay. It, it, Roger Casement is a fucking legend in Irish history. What the fuck is going on with Terence McKenna and Roger Casement? Dan, and how I get that, one of those mentals, how does if that, you wouldn't mind. And how does that relate to Outcast? Yeah. So Yeah, that, this is, I, I need a mental for this. <laughs> I was fucking, I don't know where this came out of. But anyways, this was one of those moments where you're just like, what the fuck? So it's down, I'm downstairs, 2 o'clock in the morning, listen to this fucking radio station. They're broadcasting this thing. And they're, now it's some psychedelic band from the 60s playing in the background. And they're reading from True Hallucinations. And the joke is then, of course, is that McKenna and fucking Timothy Leary are both Irish-American. And they both know who fucking Roger Casement, Casement is. is. Yeah. Which was like, whoa, what the fuck? Oh, and when you whoa. say he was Casement's guide, what do you mean he was Casement's guide? So if you read the Maria Vargas Llosa book or you read any of the biographies, the Angus Mitchell fucking biographies of Casement, Casement's a very interesting figure for me. Yeah. He, uh, when he went to the Amazon, he the, the 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 way that they would do it is the way that the the fucking rubber barons would do it is they would get uh, blacks from the Caribbean, yeah, trick them into fucking coming to work for them, and then they would have none of the fucking difficult work of of managing relations with indigenous so, uh, folks so would K- be done uh, directly. My understanding of Casement is that he exposed the horrible kind of human rights mm. abuses that were happening with rubber in what we would now call the Congo, which was Leopoldville at the time. He was against right. the Belgians. That's so what he, he did he, first. He I mean, was that in South was America first. too. Right. Well, at first he goes to the Congo. He goes to the Congo really as like 
a fella from Antrim that would come from a military family. His mother was Catholic, though. Yeah. So he was baptized Catholic secretly by his mother, and she told him to tell no one. So yeah. he was. He already had this weird kind of conflictual kind of secrecy in his in, in his thing. Basically, casement um, after the Congo. Well, in the Congo, for example, yeah. he fucking meets uh, Joseph Conrad. Yes. And he's the one that fucking shows Joseph Conrad. You know, this whole fucking adventure fucking man, yeah. you know, uh, narrative is bollocks. The real fucking deal here is, look, come with me into the jungle and I'll show you. Come with me into the jungle, I'll show you where there's fucking, felt whole fucking villages where their arms have been cut off because they yeah. didn't collect enough fucking rubber. Mind you, what are they collecting rubber for? Go on. What's the fucking technology? Bicycles. Oh Jesus Christ! The Flair first, the first single, uh, single person fucking uh, urban transportation in that period is bicycles. So What's the, the rubber in the Congo was called for bicycles in the Dude, in the, in the so, West. I mean, can you imagine the difference in riding a bicycle without a fucking rubber tire? I know, and of course, riding a bicycle yeah. without And they didn't have tire. inflatable tires then; they had pure rubber no, on the pure bicycle. Rubber. Yeah. So it was like you know the oil or the you know like valuable like the fucking Congo now. Where now it's, it's all, for you, smartphones. Yeah. Coltan. Yeah. Yeah. Coltan. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so he, so, so he writes this, you know, absolute indictment. But, but the thing that's interesting about 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 uh, Casement is that Casement, somehow, for whatever reason, he he doesn't just like say like this fucking rubber thing is a fucking bust. He says no, imperialism is a fucking bust. We're yeah. here thinking we're like, you know, the narrative is that we go there, we save them. Yeah, we're not saving them. We're fucking destroying them. Yeah. And he's really the first one to kind of articulate this. Like, and if you, to if speak you really, truth to power. Yeah. But the Brits led him away with it because he was speaking truth to Belgian power. Right. Not British power. Exactly. He was saying they were complicit, but he wasn't really directly pointing the finger yeah. at them. And, so and, and the whole back, thing with colonialism is like, the Brits will go, oh, look at what they're doing. The Spanish are terrible. Bastards. The Belgians are terrible. The Portuguese are terrible. We're brilliant. We freed we're the slaves. We're so efficient. We're yeah. so, look at how better India is now. Look mm-hmm. at how better, you know. And uh, basically, so he come back anyway, and then so then he becomes this kind of heroic figure for the what was still called abolitionists, you know, the, the, the abolitionists, which would be the kind of human rights people, the people that would have fought against slavery and whatever. But this is now the 1890s, and more or less slavery is gone. Yeah. But they're the same kind of configuration of people that were, you know, activated around slave ending slavery, or still yeah, they still yeah. exist. And they're like, you know what? Uh, we're hearing that it's worse than the fucking Amazon. And so it take him a couple of years to convince him, and they send him to the Amazon. And he's basically going to the Amazon to do the same thing, which is to basically see what's the conditions like on the ground, and what the fuck are they doing, and how can we fix it. So when he goes to the Amazon, the real issue he has is there's a, this rubber baron in Peru that basically puts a target on his back, and is, you know, basically... Then, he, of course, he gets sick, one thing and another. But how he... His basic, the trick with, with, with Casement was he was a kind of solo operator. He was a meticulous note keeper and he was, a, he was a, an adventurer. I mean, I guess he was like... Were the meticulous notes eventually the Black yes, Diaries? Yes, that's yeah. what buried him. The thing with Vargas Llosa says, and I don't, I don't know, I mean, maybe this is like my romantic Republican fucking thing, is, is that clearly he's queer, okay, but yeah. Vargas Llosa says just because he writes it doesn't necessarily mean that he did it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Just because he said he went down to the village and he seen an indigenous young fella and he fucking paid him a few bucks and got a hand job doesn't necessarily mean that he did it. 
I don't know. I mean, I'm not. I a reckon. Scholar. I reckon Casement was gay, and I think. Oh no, he's I, gay. I, I, I don't know. But I mean, I that, that's in the end what got him. In it was the Norwegian guy that's ratted him out that got him found a bad yeah. friend. You know, and so. uh, but I think in 2019 we need to be embracing. Casement was a queer hero of Ireland, and we need to really be looking at yeah. that. And oh, I agree. This narrative, because today one of the issues in Ireland is there's a rising level of fascism in Ireland. And they're latching on to figures from the 1916 rise and the Michael Collins, and they're changing the narrative. And it's like, no, hold on a second, these were radicals, they were artists. And Roger Casement was fucking queer, he was, and he was a queer voice. He was very close to Pierce, and I dare say, I think there's a strong argument to be made that there's Pierce a strong argument. But the thing with Pierce, Pierce is a bit dodgy. I mean, Pierce, I don't think, I don't think Pierce was gay. I think there was might have been a, a paedophile element to Pierce, if you read his writings. I think there's little lad of the tricks or whatever it was called. I think you know. I mean, there's certainly been the cases been made for around casement in the same way. Like that. Oh, know, has there young kids? I mean, these are you know. I mean, he's it's boys. Okay, I mean, he's interested okay. in indigenous boys. You know. But in any event, you know. So how he would operate was he would arrive in a place. In this case, uh, if I remember correctly, I think it's Beleng, Beleng de Para, which is a place that I the last place I photographed for Ghost Notes. Um, and in Beleng, he, he goes looking for a guide who's English-speaking, who knows the territory, and he finds these two Barbadans, that have been, and which would be normal in that period for, for rubber barons, would find guys <coughs> from the fucking Caribbean, because they wouldn't want to go do the dirt on the fucking indigenous. Course, They're not yeah, trying, yeah. trying to dirty their hands with fucking beaten indigenous fellas or whatever. In the same way that the corporations do it today, they keep enough distance so that of their course. blood isn't it's on a, their hands, it's on someone else's uh, hands. It's deniability, hands. yeah. Uh, subcontracting, subcontracting. And plausible, blood at the plausible deniability, right? Yeah. And s- Dan, can I get another can if you wouldn't mind? Is that all right? Worth it. Um, which is a very nice bar here. Your man's a bit unfriendly, but. <laughs> but. Um, in any event, so uh, Casement had two Barbadans that were his guides um, that had, were fellas that had, like, in good conscience, ran, had run away from... Had been tricked into working there, but then had ran away, but had never had got enough money to find their way back to Barbados or whatever. Thank you very much, Dan. Um, and whatever you're having yourself, obviously. <laughs> um, and yeah, man, that fucking same character whose name I forget now, but that same character shows up in fucking Timothy Leary. Now, where does this get into so, Outcast? Here we go. So I'm sitting there listening to that shit, and my fucking jaw now has hit the floor. I wasn't fucking expecting Casement at all. I had no idea, actually. I actually only knew of Casement. My version of Casement, like fucking St. Patrick's, St. Clements, was basically. He had tried to convince the Germans yeah. to fucking do this thing, and then he got guns, and then he ended up in Tralee, and then he ended up getting killed in England. That was it, yeah. Do you know what I mean? There was none of the other... The, the big solidarity fucking things that he did didn't exist. Yeah. And so, I, so I'm fucking in shock. And not only that, but, like, fucking... He's linked to the 60s? Like, what the fuck? Anyways, as I'm listening to the thing anyway, your man comes back... Roy of Hollywood, legendary figure in public radio in Los Angeles, comes back in. Uh, yeah, man, uh, that's uh, we're listening to the uh, Terrence McKenna True Hallucinations, being read with uh, musical accompaniment by some fucking psychedelic band from the sixties that I can't remember the name of, and we've just gotten a big donation for the twelve cassette set uh, of the reading of True Hallucinations from. You won't believe this, folks. How about this for a name? Andre 3000. And I'm just like, 
<laughs> I'm like, what in fuck's name is this? Flash forward a month later, I'm at the Virgin Megastore, fucking Crescent Heights and Sunset. I fucking step into the elevator, whatever way I look, who's fucking standing on the elevator? Andre 3000, I said, fucking hell, man. I said, and it was just when that song with Rosario Dawson had come out. And so they were like, so they were about to be like massive, the biggest thing ever. And I was just like, dude, you fucking bought the fucking cassettes of the true hallucinations reading with the Roger Casement. And, the, and he was like, I totally did. <laughs> and I was just like, fucking hell, man. And, I, you know, I have to be honest, man, over the years, like, you know, there's a sort of thing that you, you can get really depressed. You can really make yourself fucking depressed if you start thinking about, like, are these fucking white South Africans are talking to the fucking Yanks and are talking to the Israelis and are talking to every bad bunch of fuckers on the planet are all having this conversation and the joke is on us and they're yeah. fucking us up and they're stopping us from getting to where we need to be. And then you find out that Roger Casement is somehow related to Andre 3000 and for a small minute in your day in between having a smoke or a drink, you think like, actually, dude, like, we could, there's probably a way somehow we can figure this shit out. Like, we could probably, yeah, yeah, you, know, yeah. you know what I mean? And it's those little, but it's the small solidarities. Like, that's what it is. Like, you know, it's like. It's the small solidarities. Yeah. yeah. How did you end up working with Damien Marley? So... And you got to tell us the story. Tell us the story about you in Kingston with Damien Marley and the Limerick City thing. Um, oh no, that wasn't even in, that was in Dublin. But anyways, the, the Damien basically, the manager of Jurassic Five was an old friend of mine who's a Irish American cat, Dan Dalton. Um, uh, reached out to me and said, you know, um, this Jurassic thing. Uh, you know, I need I, I need to I need to you know I need to like manage other acts and he he weirdly enough had had been doing reggae shit since he was in college so he knew he was connected to that community and he said you know Damien Marley just won an Oscar got dropped by his label went back to Jamaica and made this fucking song and now all the is fucking is this Welcome to Jamrock yeah and then so all the fucking radio stations on the east coast look at him what are we looking at is that a cat nope what is it? A skunk. Is that a skunk? Yeah. Fucking hell. Yeah. Would you smell them around the place? Oh, uh, I tell him. Oh, stop. Is it what bad? What do you think is it's it? called weed? What, what do you think they call weed skunk? <laughs> is that what I bet? So half the time when I'm going around in LA and I think I smell weed, it might be a skunk. Skunk, yeah. But I, but I tell you, if you run over one, what happens? Your fucking car is fucking destroyed. I mean, it's you can't believe how bad it smells. It is fucking unreal. Wow. The only thing that can get rid of it, weirdly enough, is t uh, tomato juice. What? Yeah. So you have to rub tomato juice on your car if you roll over the skunk? Yeah. It's fucking hell. Yeah. So well, fair play, Tim. You're learning a few things now. Fair play, Tim. <laughs> so, Pepe Le Pew over there. Um, so basically, fucking, I went down to, went down to, 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 to Miami. And I met this guy, and I have to be honest, like, I'm not, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I was never like a super Bob head, like, you know, like, I remember, I remember when Bob played in Ireland, I remember everyone from Buddies going up to fucking Daily Yeah, Mount yeah, because Bob Marley him. again, like Tupac, Bob Marley and Tupac Bob are the legends deity, in Limerick, man, like, no, yeah. fucking deity, man, come on, it's fucking Bob, man, it's gong, it's the fucking man. And, uh, so anyway, I went down there anyway, and straight fucking, you know, the deal was anyway, Dan said to him, look, 
fuck these American labels. What you need to do is get a label deal for yourself off of one of them. You just distribute your shit, you produce it, you make it, you get the budgets, you figure it out. And whatever, whatever, I don't know. Jeez, in the end, I don't know what the deal was. But I, he said, if you come down, I'll pay your ticket. Do this photo shoot as part of me kind of convincing Damien that he needs me to manage him. And uh, if, if, if it all works out, you'll do the cover of Welcome to Jamrock. Yeah. And I said, fucking fine. Do you know, I'm, I honestly, I remember buying like a, one of those like comps of Bob, uh, you know, in the 60s before Ireland uh, and listening to it in the plane on the way down on CD and uh, and getting there and meeting him and, you know, I mean, I think he must have thought, like, this is as weird. I mean, you know, like, he was looking at me like, who the fuck is this guy? And I was yeah. looking at him like, and not exactly who the fuck is this guy, but, like, this is a very strange figure. And yeah. And really not having that much of a clue about Rasta or, like, you know, like... I mean, just to be fair, you know, like I was, you know, like I, reggae wasn't really my thing, you know. Like I knew a little bit of dancehall shit, yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah. The Bobby Condors era, like yeah, you know, Cuddy Ranks, like Cuddy that, that's fucking ranks, yeah. yeah. But I thought it wasn't when like a proper roots head, yeah. But I wasn't a roots head or nothing. And so then, and then we went, then you know, then it all started to, you know, all the wheels started falling in place, and I ended up going back. Then actually, they flew me from Brazil to Kingston shot the cover of Jamrock, flew back to Brazil to finish what I was working on. And, uh, and that's when we started to get to know him a little bit. But I have to be honest with you, I'm going I'm to be dead ass. And I know Damien probably have a, if he hears this, he's going to be laughing. But I doubt Damien Marley is listening to this podcast. You have no idea. <laughs> the man is a, you wouldn't be surprised. But anyways, um, it was really five or seven years before I really felt like those dudes, like... You know, like I was accepted into the group or whatever. Yeah. It's quite, you know, I mean, it's it's really serious. I mean, it, you know, I have a lot of respect for those cats. I have a lot of respect, a lot of respect for Rasta. I have a lot of respect for Bob. Uh, the original gong, uh, Leonard, Leonard Howell, the cat that invented Rasta. I mean, I, you know, it's, you know, they're, they're for them, the, 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 the same Paul for them is Marcus Garvey. And Garvey course, was, yeah, in, yeah. was in contact with Dev, you know what I mean? Garvey, like, um, yeah, big connection between Garvey and Sinn Féin and all that shit. Yeah, yeah. so, because he was like, well, how the fuck did you guys get out from under him, you know? Like, yeah. how did that work? Yeah. And, you know, these, this is a really, it's a very, very serious, uh, it's a very serious thing. And so now, you know, like, now I'm... And a guy, what's his name? Cyril, Cyril Bridge, Cyril Briggs. Yeah, Cyril, Cyril Briggs. Briggs as well, yeah. yeah. No, um, um, well, there's a number of, 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 of sort of great intellectuals. There's a lot of solidarity between uh, J- Jamaican revolutionaries and Irish revolutionaries around 1920. And uh, Marcus Garvey, Cyril Briggs, they were really... Uh, and he hooks up with the Harlem Renaissance as yeah. well. They were writing about what was happening in Ireland at the time and looking, what are the fucking paddies doing? Can yeah. we copy that? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, in the same way as, you know, fucking Gandhi is looking at fucking... Uh, uh, what's his name uh, Terence McInerney and, and fucking starving himself to yeah. fucking death in fucking Cork and going yeah. like huh that worked yeah. that's interesting because it's all against the same Which ends it's against up, the Brits it's all uh, against the Brits Martin Luther King looking yeah. at Gandhi thinking about the same thing Yeah. which turns out that in the north in the fucking 60s when they get television they see Martin Luther King and they go wait a minute sure Jesus that's the same fucking shit that we don't have yeah and it's fucking television. Yeah. Know? And it's but those even, weird, even fucking, like, you know. Huey Newton, man. You read Huey Newton's biography yeah. and he mentions, and this is how I took it back. I said this one actually to Paul Tarpey. I cracked open uh, a copy of 
evil empire by Rage Against the Machine. Yeah. And on the inside cover of Rage Against the Machine, it's all these books that uh, Zach De La Rocca is listening yeah, to. Exactly. Reading. Like a so he's got that. all the fucking black revolutionaries and in the middle of it is Dubliners by James Joyce. Yeah. And I was looking at this going, what the fuck is that? And then I read Huey P. Newton's biography. Huey P. Newton was reading James Joyce Dubliners and recognising the oppression of the Catholic Church and relating that to the oppression of the police in America against the black community. Ding. Damn, dude. Did you just see something green come flying out of this guy land by that uh, mountain over there? I didn't just see a fucking UFO, did we? I just seen something green come out of the mountain. Oh, man. Did you that see was... that then? Oh, I missed it. The two Limerick lads saw it. Uh, that was really weird. Anyways, yeah. So, you know, that, I mean, that, for me, music is just a, like, a lot of times it's like a vessel to fucking... To find those little fucking... Tell us the story and, about uh, oh, the, yeah. the Jamaican lads and the Limerick thing. <laughs> so, fast forward a bunch of years later, now I'm part... Like, I'm Damien Marley's photographer or whatever. And uh, he's touring Europe. I don't know, this is a few years ago, four or five years ago. And we end up in Dublin. And it's the end of the tour. And we have a day off before everyone flies back. And it's a Sunday. And there's a reggae club in Dublin on the Sunday at the yeah. Button Factory, I think yeah. it is. And so someone, anyway, from the gig or whatever, is, like, the manager's texting me, like, hey, we're all going to go down to... Because everyone was sleeping. Because, you know, when you're on tour, like, it's like, there's much sleep, and then you get a day off, and everyone's just, like, yeah. room service, and... Yeah. And so I was like, oh, shit, like, 9 or 10 o'clock, we're all going to go over to the button factory. Okay, cool, we'll go over to the button factory, go with D. You know, and it's a... You know the deal, man. You're moving with a dude that's, like, a fucking, you know, sort of religious figure almost, you know? Like, yeah. he's like a... It's Bob Marley's son. It's Bob Marley's son, man. You know. So we're over there anyway, and whatever, dude. Like, I'm just a fucking photographer. And and mostly, you know, at that, you know, when they're having a good time, that's generally not when they want to be me, have me taking photos. So I'm just fucking chilling in the back, having a fucking pint, and thinking, like, wow, what a trip. We're at some fucking reggae club at the Button Factory. Okay, fair enough. With Damien Marley. And, uh, so the word comes anyway that the thing is about to end, but there, there's a Shebeen on Camden Street owned by, I don't know if they're Nigerian fellas or Kenyan fellas. But the funny fucking thing is anyway that either way, whether it was Nigerians or Kenyans, it was actually a fucking Chinese restaurant. And yeah. under the Chinese restaurant, there was these kind of, they look like rooms that you could book out for like a birthday party or something. Yeah. You know? So they brought us down there anyway. So there's two lads from the... From the like the button fa- the, the, that do the reggae night that are there, and uh, they're from Kingston. And they're from Kingston, so we're all you know it's it's Rastas like so it's all sullen and fucking Guinness and fucking weed and it's everyone serious and they're reasoning. I don't know if you know about this, but like no. Rastas reason, you know, it's like is it, for us to be arguing or kind of what we're doing now, where it's like except that it actually can be. It can be competitive sometimes. Yeah. It's generally a lot of biblical shit. It's, it, you know, it's 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 pre-colonial a lot of times. You know, like what happened with the Queen of Sheba when she, you know, this kind of stuff. And so they're all reasoning and whatever. And then these two lads from the button factory, in a way, from Kingston, fucking kind of tapped me on the shoulder and asked me to go outside. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. And then they said, ah, they were saying that you're from Limerick. And I was like, yeah, I'm from Limerick. And the one fella says. I'd never fucking go there. And I was like, <laughs> I was just shaking my head. Like, I was like, hold up a fucking minute. You're from fucking Kingston. Like, 
what are you fucking talking about? Like, what do you think Limerick is? Like, yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, I've been to Kingston. Like, fuck off, dude. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's like, gunman ting. Come on, dude. That's not Limerick, man. Lim- like, 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 Kingston is, fucking Kingston is fucking rough, man. I mean, Kings, Jamaicans in general are pretty surly, and it's, you know, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, and Limerick just isn't that, but Limerick has this, uh, it just has this fucking amazing rep. You know, I mean, it's helpful sometimes, actually. Like, if you say you're from Limerick, like, the people fucking look at you differently or whatever, like... But it's it's funny to me, because I never really... I don't know, I never really felt like... I, I never really fucking was... I mean, I don't fucking walk anywhere in Limerick, man. I mean, yeah. my... Yeah. And I'm one thing, but Limerick my old is man, fucking grand. It's, it's the, man this is, I mean, mad reputation that came out of fucking nowhere. It's... And, and but the, what, what bothers me, it's funny, but at the same time, it's annoying... Because it's like, how the fuck did boys from Kingston figure out Ireland is grand except from fucking Limerick? Kingston, you know? And I mean, in all honesty, man, like, do you think in reality, like, if I was anywhere and I seen, and then someone told me, like, uh, do you see the two lads over there? They're from Kingston. I'd go over and tap them on the shoulder and ask them to go outside and ask them, like, Jesus, you're from Kingston. I'd never go there. (laughs) So what fucking Dublin prick got into the two boys' ears and told them to stay the fuck away from Limerick. It was fucking hilarious, dude. I was Jesus. like, well, give me a fucking break, man. We've reached, I'd say, the two and a half hour mark there. No, Brian, so I think we'll wrap it up. We've done the, the majority of your career. We were supposed to talk about a lot about hip-hop and your experiences, but it went into various tangents. But fuck it, that's a good podcast. That's what I'm happy with. Yeah, that seems about right. I've, All right. Yeah. Okay. I've, God bless. God bless Brian you. Cross. Thank you very much. Dan! Where's Dan gone? I wanted to give Dan a shout out. The mind, I'm sure he's probably having a slash. Is he having a slash? Dan, we're, we're wrapping up the podcast and I think Dan is the man who provided cans and fags and I want to give a, a proper Dublin shout out to Dan. Well, you're more than welcome, pal. It's a fucking pleasure to have you. Thank you very much. Yart. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.